0: Hi, this is Bob Gruen, rock and roll photographer from New York, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast.
1: Pantheon Podcast presents... Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now... With the show,
2: lines form on my face and hands, lines form from the ups and downs. I'm in the middle without any plans. I'm a boy and I'm a man, diggers. Hey, hey, friends and fellow rock and rollers, it's another edition of Deeper Digs, a legends edition. With us today will be the supermensch himself, Shep Gordon. If you know a little bit about him, uh, get ready because. We went long and deep. Um, Yeah, you know, as the show title suggests. Uh, And if you don't know much about Shep, well, get ready to have your mind blown by what may be the greatest manager to ever inhabit the world of rock and roll. Well, certainly he is the coolest cat of them all. Okay, a a little bit of business, uh, more new shows. Yes, over 50 now on the network, so plenty of rock and roll goodness for whatever it is you are looking for. Try the main Pantheon feed for a sample of almost all we have in stock and then subscribe to the shows you really love so you don't ever miss an episode from your favorite Pantheon show and host. A couple of new shows uh, for you to think about uh, this week. First up... Uh, is Pantheon's youngest so far uh, host, 18-year-old Daniel Cohen, a.k.a. D3, with his new show, Ready to Record. He's a young engineer and producer. Uh, D3 brings you... Uh, ready to record from his home studio in San Francisco. Yeah, I think uh, Phineas O'Connell of Billie Eilish fame. Uh, He'll be interviewing recording veterans, uh, reviewing gear, and sharing music he is working on. Join the D3 as he explores ways to make epic recordings in his garage. If you like uh, the career musician, I know you're going to love this show uh, as well. Uh, Just a little musical uh, geek out uh, for those uh, in the business or wanting to be in the business or wanting to know, you know, how the business works, how recording and engineering works and things like that. Also new, uh, and I mean brand new, uh, with only one episode out right now, uh, is an interesting look at Sir Paul McCartney's life in music. It's called A Stroll Down Penny Lane with host Joe Anastasi, and it's produced by Mike Sugar. I first became aware of this concept by actually seeing the stage production about a year ago. Uh, Well, it was actually network producer Peter Ferrioli who suggested I see it. So when the idea was pitched to turn this into a podcast, let me tell you, we were all in. And I think you'll agree. Originally, Stroll Down Penny Lane is a live performance with beautiful accompanying films of the music of the most iconic songwriter of our age, Paul McCartney. The show includes songs spanning McCartney's career from early influences uh, to the Beatles, of course, uh, through the Wings period and beyond. All are performed by some of the Bay Area's most sought-after career musicians. You also hear songs that have never been performed in concert anywhere by anyone. Well, of course, at present, like all live events, It is off the road, but we're going to recreate a bit of it in podcast form. So we hope you not only enjoy the show in your earbuds, um, but will become such a fan that when Joe and his team get back on the road, you'll buy a ticket when they come to your hometown. So that's two great new shows. Young D3, Daniel Cohen with Ready to Record and uh, Stroll Down Penny Lane with uh, Joe Anastasi. Um, both uh, are, are fantastic shows, and uh, we have a lot of high hopes for them. And we hope you guys enjoy them. Please check them out, okay? All right, lots more to talk about, lots going on at uh, Pantheon. Please visit the web- website, uh, pantheonpodcast.com. You can find uh, all the shows there, some news, uh, anything you're looking for. Uh, also on Facebook, you can get a hold of us there if you're interested. Be a part of the community. Uh, be a part of the Diggers community. Uh, and that's at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Same on Instagram. Uh, and Pantheon Pods on Twitter. Uh, Me, uh, personally, I can be reached on Twitter at uh, Swain underscore Christian. Hit me up and I'll I'll do my best to answer uh, any and all questions. Thanks to all of our followers and fans, and especially thanks to all our patrons at patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast if you're interested. Okay, that's it. Short and sweet. Let's get to it. Some of you may have seen the 2013 Mike Myers, you know, Wayne's World fame directed documentary on our guest today called Supermench: The Legend of Shep Gordon. It's a great documentary on what I happen to believe is one of the great men of rock and roll. And I think, what, I think what I really mean is one of the good guys of rock and roll, like, you know, like Ahmet Erdogan or Clive Davis or Barry Gordy uh, and others, you know, while he could be a son of a bitch uh, if needed, overall, he loved his clients and did everything in his power to do them right. All helped legends become legends and in doing so become legends themselves. So it's kind of funny that we started with no more Mr. Nice Guy, uh, which ends the film as the credits roll uh, is uh, kind of a hilarious in-joke. Funny story on how this interview came about. Our L.A. producer, Aaron Alden, who produces Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, as well as some of our other shows, was trying to get Alice Cooper for Miss P's show. You know, they, too, go back a long way. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talked about it and she picked up the phone and called Shep who is, and has always been Alice's manager. Well, within an hour or so, she got an email working out the details. Aaron excitedly called me and, uh, I was very happy. Big name. Alice Cooper was going to be on Miss P's show. And I said to Aaron, well, I want Shep on mine. Well, here he is. Uh, two birds with one stone. Thank you very much, Aaron. Aaron. Real quick, uh, the Shep Gordon story is much more than just music. Certainly his attachment to Alice Cooper is the big story. Without Shep's help, no Alice uh, and Mr. Vincent uh, Fernier uh, would be the first to agree, I am sure. Shep turned the success of Alice Cooper on to Anne Murray uh, about the polar opposite and then Blondie, Tendi, Teddy, Pendergrass, Luther Vandross, Ben Vereen, Burton Cummings, the Calloways, Squeeze, Frankie Valley, Gary Wright, George Clinton, the Gypsy Kings, Groucho Marx, Jean-Luc Ponty, Johnny Clegg, Kenny Loggins, King Sonia Day, Lisa Fisher, oh man, Maurice White, Michelle Shocked, uh, new writers of the Purple Sage, Pink Floyd for one day pointer sisters raquel welsh rick james oh the list just goes on and on then it was on the film uh gordon uh, first uh film as a producer the duelists uh which is a personal favor of mine in ridley scott's first feature it won the Cannes film festival in 1977 his first film he went on to create one of the first independent film production companies in the u.s active films Uh, who made Roadies in 1980, starring Meatloaf. In 1983, Alive formed a partnership with Island Records to create Island Alive, who made and distributed films, including Koyana which is really hard to say, great, crazy, weird Philip Glass movie, Uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Stop Making Sense of the Talking Heads, and Choose Me. In 1993, Gordon created Alive Culinary Resources, the first talent agency to represent chefs. In the words of Emeril Lagasse, he single-handedly created celebrity chefs. His client list has included Celestino Drago, Charlie Trotter, Daniel Boulud, uh, Dean Fearing, Emeril, Jimmy Schmidt, Jonathan Waxman, Larry Forgione, uh, and again, the list goes on and on. Uh, Roy Yamaguchi. I mean, just Sam Choi. If you're a foodie, (laughs) this is it's just crazy. It's just uh, it's a life that I uh, envy. Put it that way. Uh, Oh, and he cooked for his holiness, the Dalai Lama in Hawaii. And he helped Groucho Marx get his finances in order before he passed away. Like I said, super mensch. Okay, so let's get to it. You know, Shep was extraordinary, generous with his time. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we got a long one. It's all worthwhile. Um, and I got to speak to him from his famous home on now. All right, I give you Shep Gordon. Let
3: me take it, baby. To tell you something to go right to your head, Ooh, yeah. I got a lot on you, baby,
2: I got a lot on you, baby, I got a lot on you, I I got a lot on you, baby. Chef Gordon, welcome to Deeper Digs today.
3: Aloha,
4: nice to be here. Aloha you. to you.
2: So, first is how are you doing uh, during this incredible pandemic, nasty pandemic, whatever you want to I
4: say? Had, um, you know, life is always a roller coaster, but this has been it's like the, uh, this is the world, the uh, roller coaster, the challenge of the world. And, and I've had a few things in the middle of it. I've had my, um, I had a baby boy.
2: Congratulations.
4: And I was in LA in the middle of the riots with it. And um, I lost my assistant from cancer about a week ago, who oh. um, was my sister, mother, child. So, it, uh, is,
2: is this the woman who was yeah, with you at your bedside when you had yeah, your uh, uh, yeah. intestinal issues? Yeah. She oh, my
4: God. Last week.
2: What was her name again?
4: Nancy. 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 Oh, uh, that's horrible. And, um, it's hard, uh, you know, I, I, um, I guess I'm part of the, uh, what you might call these days, the white elite, you know, um, I've, yeah. I have all the advantages. I'm not starving. I have some resources. I can pay my rent, but it's hard not to, um, to look at at the landscape and just feel the pain.
3: And, well, uh,
2: if you don't mind, we we going there for a minute. Um, you know, first congratulations on your child, which is your your first natural yeah. child. But but you raised four African American children.
4: Uh huh. I did.
2: And so you have a, a, a more interesting perspective on the current situation, which has, you know, bubbled to the surface uh, after, you know, being tamped down, uh, for so long. And, and this time in some way, I kind of feel like we seem to be getting somewhere.
4: I hope so. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's, um, it's so in the system, it's so ingrained in people. Um, I thought there was really one of the really interesting things. It was that woman in central park, who called up 911 and said, there's an African man, uh, an Afro-American man trying to harass me. Um, and I don't even think she did that from a prejudice point of view. She did it. It felt like it was, it's just part of what's taken for granted. When yeah, the, was, the expectation
2: was, the, from yeah, her. Yeah.
4: yeah. Um, and my kids um, always were getting stopped by the police, always had trouble, a couple of them ended up in, incarcerated, Um, but that's black America. Um, and it's so ingrained in the system that it's ingrained on both sides. I think it's ingrained in the white supremacist, of which, you know, I try to think I'm not one, but we are a privilege Mm -hmm. and we take things for granted. And it's also ingrained in the Afro-Americans that they're not going to get a fair shake. Um, so they don't always play by the same rules we do. Um and you can see it it's just ingrained in it. So it's a it's a really difficult situation. But I agree, I I I'm seeing some light in the tunnel. It feels to me a little bit like um the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement of the sixties. It does, doesn't part. it? Yeah, it's very, very similar. It's um it's driven not necessarily by the people who are the victims. Um although they may be at the starting point, but the masses are people who are sympathetic and maybe we can make some changes. I wish the, uh, not to go to politics, but I wish the, wish the political landscape was a little more compassionate.
2: Um, well, hopefully we'll get a change uh, for, of that in November uh, because yeah, we probably couldn't be saddled with the worst person uh, in the top leadership position to respond to something like this.
4: Yeah. I think it's, it's, um, you know, he's the whitehead on the pimple.
2: <laughs> that's a good uh, way to put it.
4: So, um, it's go run so much deeper than him. Yeah. Yeah. to, empower, uh, to do empower him to do it, but for, that's for another day, but hopefully we'll get some progress. I think, uh, if, if all this energy can be turned into voting, and then then can be turned into social programs, like the Peace Corps was a program like um there were so many great programs in the history of America where people were put back to work um, where oh the it,
2: fDr's new deal uh, we yeah. can we can start from there, uh, which
4: values you know that represented values that America always stood for. Um, so I hope yeah. something comes over.
2: yeah, or at least what our ideals. Uh, are supposed to stand for. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you make a point that uh, I, I want to delve just a little bit into, and that is, uh, you know, uh, the reason why we saw um, an outpouring of, of um, you know, uh, let's just say white America begin to pay attention to the struggle of black America in the 1960s was because of television, because you could see what, was happening you know especially in the in the Jim Crow South yeah, uh, yeah. you know and, and and how they were treated that caused you know uh, people's heads to explode because they were told well it, that's not really how it was but then you see for yourself now with the advent of you know these uh, camera phones that everybody has uh, you know it's it's to your point it's it's we we have that evidence again uh mm. and and probably uh, of, a, of a tenfold magnitude
4: yeah that's so ingrained so hopefully hopefully we come through it as a better group of people
2: it it's dependent on the youth of america uh you know you mentioned uh, the need for voting uh you know young people are known uh to not uh, necessarily be uh somebody that a group that can be counted on uh yeah. when it's time to do that i think there is a change in the air To quote Thunderclap Newman, Um, but um, you know, uh, you know that I I think there's a lot of that in the in 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 the American uh, democracy experiment of uh, the unwillingness to get involved, and I think it's kind of hard these days for anybody to at least not take a side.
4: Yeah, I hope so. I hope they get motivated.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, now that you know you've had some time and we've had some time to process this and you know realize that this pandemic uh, we're all in for a much longer haul than maybe what was first thought of, you know what are what are your thoughts about the the future in general and and especially in you know the the businesses that you've been in music movies and uh, and the culinary arts.
4: Yeah, I think um, of the three, the culinary arts seems to be finding a path through and there's a lot of reinvention going on i think it's going to look very different than it looked before but there's uh this home delivery phenomenon which is really exciting um there's some there's there's some really exciting things going on it'll be difficult but there's light at the tunnel the film industry, I think, will get back fairly soon. They'll figure out ways to keep a set safe, and I'm starting already to see I got an offer for um, Alice to do a television show. That's uh, a pilot. So I can see music. I am having trouble for acts like Alice seeing a pass through. I, I don't see. It's hard for me until there's a vaccine or some kind of a cure to see how he goes back on the road, which is really his life. Yeah, you know? um, He's right at that point where it's really difficult. He does big productions. Um, we sell 5,000 seats, maybe in Europe, a little bit more. Um, so if, if you, you don't have the luxury of, of selling 50,000 seats and be able to scale back to 20, if you go from 5000 to 2000 we can't afford our show anymore. Um, yeah,
2: you're not going to get the Alice Cooper experience. They, that's for sure.
4: Experience. So it's a, it's a difficult time and, very, and much harder to reinvent in the music world because so much of it is intimate. Um, I've been watching uh, – I watch just about every one of the virtual reality shows, and they're great. I mean, they're all I, – I really appreciate the –
2: Emotionally,
4: they're great. Yeah, emotionally um, – production
2: wise uh you know it is exciting
4: yeah yeah
3: yeah.
4: Yeah. it's a different a completely different experience for me it's more of um i get a simpatico feeling with the artist rather than an excitement from the music Mm, yeah it it makes me feel good to see an artist spending their time trying to help people because almost all of them have benefits yeah but you don't get that thing in your groin that you get when you're at a rock and roll show,
2: <laughs> and you know that very well, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I. Number one, I, I never believed that uh, rock and roll translated very well to the two D screen. Uh, you 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 inevitably lose that visceral uh, experience of being in that crowd and in that moment. Uh, as as it's taking place. And it, it's never seems to be captured no matter how you do it uh, on screen.
4: You, you know, it brings back great memories. Mm. So for nostalgia, it's fantastic. Yeah. But as the original source of the energy, it's a little tougher. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah it's going to be um, the music industry, to your point, is, uh, is probably um, the most disruptive yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, you, you add to the fact that, you know, in the last 20 years, the music industry, the canary in the coal mine to disruption in, you know, the the, the new world of um, the virtual world we are living more and more in, uh, you know, we went from a um, uh, a calculus of Uh, the recordings were the money-making side of things and the tour was the marketing side of things to flipping that completely where the artists make very little money off recordings and all of that money is in the uh, the live
4: performance
3: Hmm.
2: and now we can't even do that
3: yeah no
4: it's um I I, maybe it'll get people to refocus again on the balance of uh... Of monetary re- rewards, they're so tipped against the artist right now in the recording. I, I think if you look at the record companies, they're making more money than they ever made in their lives.
2: You think even more so than like the oh. the, the great '80s of the CD oh. and MTV,
4: huh? I think it's ever. I think you look at Universal. You look at you know the the companies that are thriving, uh-huh. they're making more money than they ever made um, because there's no expenses.
2: Yeah. There, there's, there's no tangible products anymore. It's all yeah, virtual. Right
4: so, yeah. um, yeah, I think it's, it's just that it doesn't get redistributed back to the artist.
2: Well, that's um, unsustainable.
4: I think, yeah, I think, you know, I think everybody got so wealthy on the road and selling merchandise that they took their eye off the ball. Um, but I think eventually the, the eye will come back on the ball. I, I would think it has to, um,
2: yeah it's um you know i i I think we'd both agree that uh you know new world uh was uh you know, being birthed into the 21st century. That's not uncommon when, you know, you have such uh, huge technological change, such as what the internet has has brought. And, you know, I, I think the internet uh, can easily be uh, akin to uh, uh, Gutenberg's printing press as yeah. that dramatically, uh, you know, a change in, in how human behavior uh, begins. Uh, and, uh, you know, w- along with new life comes death and a lot of things you know go the way of the dodo
3: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
2: yeah. i I mean you know uh, you know i I constantly get into discussions with folks that you know this period of time of which you you got to live such a great life a part of this this unusual period of music is highly unusual musicians were not treated like deities, uh, you know, back before the age of media. And, uh, you know, given that we now live in a world where, you know, uh, anybody with uh, with access to a computer and uh, some simple software can make, you know, some pretty decent music, oh. uh, there's this giant sea of mediocrity. And it's difficult for, you know, real artists to, you know, climb out of it and be seen as, you know, unique and And culturally changing like Alice Cooper did,
4: yeah, no but I think also it's um you know music is one piece of a puzzle, so you have to look at the culture and the society and and that period of time, culturally was a remarkable period of time. It was people demonstrating to get rid of the war, having their voices heard, um, civil the civil rights movement um a a moment of consciousness in America which really um, hadn't existed up till then um, where mass society became conscious and the music reflected all that.
2: Yeah, a real feedback loop.
4: Yeah, so then you get to today where um, there's a lot of noise and no positions being taken other than self-interest on everybody's part and I think the music reflects a lot of that, you know, um, instead of talking about, you know, the times they are changing, come on mothers and fathers throughout this whole land. It's, uh, you know, fuck the police. It's, um, it's a, ne- it's a, ne- of-
2: a negative as opposed to a positive exactly, message of
4: where we are. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, and I, I know when I would walk past my kids room and I'd hear the lyrics to these songs, wow, where's all this anger come from? And then you see it pour into the streets and you start to understand it. So I, I think, you know, you can't separate the music from the times. Um, cause it, great art is always a reflection of the times. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh,
2: so well, I'd say art in general, it doesn't even have to be great. Yeah. Uh, it is reflecting what is happening, uh, out there. And, uh, you know, um, I hate to say this, but but uh, it uh, kind of reminds me of uh, just prior to the French Revolution uh, yeah. that, that sure know, the not. angry of the of the mob, um, you know, if if not quelled, uh, you know, by 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 giving uh, you know by the elites giving uh, you know some semblance of, of of a of a of a, of a, a well-lived life.
4: Uh, uh, to its citizens they, they will theory. rise up you know sure it's exactly the give them cake theory yeah they're hungry give them cake you know that's that that's exact oh we're having an economic problem here let's give the richest people in america lots more money that'll take care of it that'll yeah. solve everything let's it's <laughs> cake
2: that's that's insanity, uh, exactly. I, I, especially after, you know, you, you're, you're, you're talking about trickle down economics, uh, especially after the, there's mountains of evidence showing that that uh, economic methodology does not
4: work. But now there's, mal- there's plenty of evidence to show that it doesn't work for us. But it works for them. Oh, yeah. It it (laughs) certainly does. They're the only ones that count in this game at this point. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now
0: has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price.
2: And yes, she loves them.
1: And now back to the program.
2: So I'm going to, I'm going to give a quote here. May the poor find wealth. Those weak with sorrow find joy. May the forlorn find new hope, constant happiness and prosperity. May the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be free. May the weak find power and may their hearts join in friendship. That opens your book. Uh Uh, And that is a quote from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Why did you want the reader to first see that?
4: Because um, that's—I I have it next um, in my bed. Um, I have on the wall a container of rice that His Holiness gave me, and that was what was in the container of rice.
2: This is the note he
4: gave yeah, you. Yeah, this is the note. note—not handwritten, but just—it mm-hmm. was in there, and. um, I always think about it when I go to sleep and I think about it when I wake up, it's right there in front of my face. So I wanted to read it as sort of be where I was, um, you know, as they started the journey with me. Um, So a bit of a mantra to you. Yeah. And I think it, it, um, it focuses me on what's really important in life and, and you know, where do what can I do to be a piece of this um, planet and that's it's positive and not negative and that that sort of keeps me thinking uh, about you know being compassionate and not getting caught up in you know ego and all that stuff. Have you always been that way? Um, no, I don't know. You know, I really can't say it's, been, it's an evolving thing. I always, um, I always like to help people. Um, I think it was an important part. I'm not. I was raised Jewish, and we weren't religious at all, but culturally, we we're very strong. Mm-hmm. And um, so much of the culture is about helping other people. You always set an extra place at the table in case Elijah shows up. Um, You always make more food than, you know, my grandmother used to always say. I said, why do you make so much food, grandma? I said, you never know when a bus of hungry people are going to pull up. Um, So I always found myself akin to it, but I never thought about it. Um, I couldn't, you know, um, it it wasn't a focal point of my life um, at all. A focal point of my life was having fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you are a natural hedonist that, 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 that much is sure. Is, is assured. <laughs> <Yep>.
3: <laughs> and, and I'm,
2: and I'm right with you, Shep. Uh, yeah. I, well, I, I, a I, in, in a weird way, our lives have, uh, have paralleled uh, yeah. uh, in some, uh, in some ways. So, you, got, uh, um,
4: you know, I had, I had certain little points in my life that I would say were the, the doorways for me um, for at least the first part of my life, which was more of my focus. Um, when I was in a freshman at college, I got arrested at a Howard Johnson's for eating too much spaghetti. It was an all you could eat spaghetti dinner. It's funny. I do, I do these zoom calls now. I think everybody now is doing zoom calls during the pandemic. And one of them is with my fraternity brothers from Buffalo and the three guys that I got arrested with are on the zoom call. So we laughed about it, but Oh we, my God, that's hilarious. It was, it was all you could eat spaghetti. Yeah. And we had like three portions. I said we couldn't go back again. And I said, no, it says all you can eat. She said, well, we're going to call the police. And I said, no, I'll call the police. The police came. We explained to them, big sign, all you could eat. They went in the back and talked to the manager. And I, all four of us were in handcuffs. In the next second, take it to the jail. And I said to myself, you know, I better get rich.
2: Yeah, because we know who has the power.
4: Because we know. And, and, so that was a big moment in my life. Mm that was my first time that I decided I had to do some something and that something was get rich. I didn't know how, uh-huh. but okay, this is, I'm not going to ever get in this position again. And the only way not to is to get rich. That, that was really the driving energy for me. Um, and, but I always wanted to have fun. So I mixed it with that, but that was my driver. And then, when I finally got to that plateau where I, I I had resources, you know, I bought a white Rolls Royce, I bought a house, I did stuff. Then I was Then then I could look in the mirror and see more than just I have to get rich. I could see wait, uh, wh- whoops, who am I? What price did I pay for this? What am I becoming? Um, and that's when I started to. Luckily for me, I got I've I found some mentors in my life. And I started to be able to feel what was really important to me. Um and listen to myself. And when I started to do that, I I um, started to see that I always really wanted to be like that guy on the white horse mm-hmm. who comes in and saves the day. Yeah. Um and that was really what got me off, not getting rich, but doing that. Um and, so that's when things like that, those poems became important to me, because once I realized that that's who I was, it was, "Wow, how, so how do I do that?" I'm like, "You know, I'm, I'm taking more drugs than any human being should ever take. Um, I'm having very shallow relationships that are built on on uh, external beauty. How do How do I find a path to Really see who I am, which I think I'm starting to get a sense of, so that's when that's a long way to tell you why those words are there because I need constant reminders, you know I think we all do uh, I think need, you're right you know, of, yeah. um, so
2: and the more the more uh that we get reflections of that, the more we stay on that path
4: absolutely yeah yeah um, one that's I think has served me well I think it, it it's brought a um, service has brought a real um, light to my life.
3: Mm, mm.
2: And it's something that, as we will discover going through this discussion today, it's 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 learned behavior, that anybody, can, can do this, uh, you know, as you just admitted, you didn't start off this way, uh, granted when, when you got to a, a position of being able to reflect, uh, because the basic needs were more than taken care of, uh, you could internalize that, uh, even though I, I think, you know, reading your book, watching Superman's the movie, um, you know, you can see that this does kind of begin even in your early life. I mean, you, yeah, can, but I mean, the you
4: mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> (laughs) Yeah,
4: I I didn't know why. It just was a way, you know, like even when I was, you know, a coked out crazy head in LA, when someone was, anybody told me they had a. You mean
2: when you were wearing the t shirt that said no head, no backstage pass?
4: I think I lost you somewhere. I lose you. are. there. Yeah, even in those days. One of my things that I was known for in LA, and I never knew why, was I always made big batches of chicken soup. And if someone said they were sick, I'd have a runner in my office bring him chicken soup. Um,
2: uh, that's a nice gesture. Simple, nice
4: gesture. It, it's, that's, those are the simple kind of, I never understood why I did it.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But then when I started to reflect on and try to listen to who I was, I realized that I enjoyed that more than signing a multi-million-dollar contract. The contract was boring to me. Yeah. The, the ability to get someone some chicken soup when they were sick. Mm-hmm. That was exciting to me. That got me off. That got me to look in the mirror and like me. Doing a big deal didn't really. It was great. It was nice. It was great for a client, but it didn't do for me what giving someone chicken soup did. Um, wow.
2: Okay. All right. That tells us a lot uh, about yeah.
4: you. Yeah. But so, you don't. It's hard to hear that in yourself. You know, especially when you're moving fast. You just. You act. You do stuff. You,
2: Yeah. Well, and especially uh, given the lifestyle and the career path that you took, that's a very fast paced lifestyle. So there's very little time to sit back and reflect, but at least you knew right away or you knew early enough that, uh, you know, your uh, decisions of, uh, you know, what's supposed to be your job uh, finding and signing big contracts wasn't really doing it for you neither right. was the drugs or the uh the shallow i enjoyed
4: every second oh yeah oh, oh yeah. Was, we
2: always it do was, it's the after effects that uh, yeah
4: and, and it was you know it was a realization that um everyone around me was dying uh Jimi hendrix died jim morrison died johannes died mm-hmm. people everywhere were dying um and we weren't we didn't have that glow in our face of happiness that I would see once in a while in people. It was more it was tenser. Mm-hmm. It was like a tense jo- a happiness. You know It was like, um, do I have the prettiest women? Do I have the best drugs? Do I have- It was a layer underneath all of it. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was headed for trouble, um, And hopefully I could find something to hold on to before I drowned.
2: <laughs> <laughs> or, you, or you found yourself in the grave.
4: Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. So, um, you, you mentioned your, uh, your fraternity brothers at uh, the <laughs> University of Buffalo, yeah. uh, I, I believe. Uh, and and you know, as we will see, uh, you know, you didn't set out <laughs> to be a manager, uh, exactly, but you did have an inherent knack for PR. And I, I need to ask you about the, uh, the thallus of, uh, market. Yep. Marcantia? Um, yeah, Marcantia. Mark Mark, yeah, so Mark- yeah tell us tell us about the Thallus of Marcantia.
4: <laughs> it's it's uh, the uh, Thallus of Marcantia.
2: Marcantia, excuse it's me. Sexual. Uh, I'm sorry, I did not look it up on my oh, no, Google no. Maps. Uh, I meant to do that, but I, I didn't well, get around well, to it. I would have had the uh, the uh, the th- the, th- the language uh, uh, under my belt by then.
4: We've been so. sharing stories about it on our call. Um, it was. Um, in those days, when you when you studied for exams, you took these things called black beauties. They were ah oh, speed, yeah, speed, mm-hmm. and you'd stay up for days for your finals. That was part of the college experience, mm-hmm. even if you didn't need to. That was that was going to college in those days. And I was—I I
2: have a twenty-year-old I, I in college. I know <laughs> hey, I, I'm so I'm living vicariously through him these so, days. So, yes.
4: I was a sophomore. I was rushing freshmen for my fraternity, Sigma Alpha Mu. I went to the freshman dorms, and these the freshmen were studying for biology test. and they were hysterical laughing. They had just um, come across the studying this um, the thallus of Marcanthia, which was a sex fer, sex organ of a fern. And one of the guys said, "Sounds like the head of a country." <laughs> And that just led on and on and on of building a story. And the story became, he's a, the head of a, of a African country, very oil rich, always been very quiet, never been to America. Why don't we send the mayor of Buffalo a telegram saying that Thales of Marcantha is coming to Buffalo? And we didn't really think about it anymore. We, one of, uh, there was a guy named Artie Shine who had a friend who lived in New York right by the UN. And he said, my friend will go to the Western Union at the U.N. and send a telegram to the mayor. Be hysterical. Okay. So we, so good we plot. Go, good thought. We go to sleep. We figure it, nobody ever thinks anything's going to happen. We wake up the front page of the Buffalo Evening News. Dallas and Marcantia visiting Buffalo. First royal visit. He's going to be greeted at the airport by the mayor with a great carpet. They reserved the top floor of the Sheridan downtown for him. So we holy fuck! what are we gonna do now we said, what the hell let's let's ship in some money let's send artie shine or a volunteer Artie volunteered go to new york and fly back we gave him sheets and pillowcases and um so he gets on the plane he goes to new york I, it might have been me it might have been someone else i can't tell you who did said what um but we said what well, now that we got this going, let's really get it going. Why don't we call the B'nai B'rith and tell him that the Thallus of Markiania is anti Semitic? <laughs> How could they let him come here for a royal visit? A well, thousand people showed up at the airport with picket signs. Send the Thallus back. He's anti Semitic. He hates Jews. They broke through the window at the airport. Oh, the crap. Nobody got hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I have the newspaper stories from it. And, um, driving into the city. One of the newsmen at WKBW remembered Thallus of Arcania and they ended up taking him away. I, I already lives in London. He may have passed away the last few years, but I had a very funny thing. I sort of stopped telling the story because it's so ridiculous and unbelievable. But when you do your book tour, yeah, you get into a rhythm of stories that you tell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could see this one just fell on completely dead ears. Um, so I get to, um, I'm doing a Jewish center in maybe Allentown, Pennsylvania, because Jewish centers have big book fairs. Um, and this person in the back asked me um, to tell him about the Thallus of Markania. Turns out that four of the people at my talk were there. Went to picket for the B'nai
3: B'rith.
4: <laughs> <laughs> hey, what, that, what that did for me, and I can't say... That, I was part of a team that orchestrated it, but the realization that I had after it, which I, again, sometimes you don't understand the realization so much later on in your life. Mm -hmm. When I started with Alice, the experience with the Thallus, to me, translated into don't wait for history, make history.
2: One of your maxims. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Go make history. Envision what you want. Create it. Don't wait around for it to happen, and that's what the Thales taught me um, which was amazing
2: and you uh uh employed that many times
4: yeah, i mean though uh, know, I sort of retired that was you know i had as a manager there were there were I wasn't the strongest at making the most money for guys because again, that wasn't hundred percent my interest, mm-hmm. and I was always honest to my artists about it but what i re- what I enjoyed was giving them the gift of not having to use their second name, you know Alice, no oh,
2: that's huge, yeah, Raquel. yeah
4: Luther, Teddy um, that was what got me off was um you know, so that I used that sense of history with each of the artists to write what i wanted the narrative to be so in the case of of alice it was um uh, disgusting things that parents hated yeah whatever parents hated uh it, and and
2: let me tell you chef it worked perfect for you me no
4: every kid i come at my age <laughs> tells me about how their parents would have let a million
2: to- dollar babies are you yeah. kidding me
4: that was what we wanted that to be the history because we knew that would work in the case of a Teddy, um, I wanted the women of the world to know Teddy Pendergrass. I wanted the women to know that this was the sexiest guy on the planet.
2: Not, 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 not a high bar to, to try yeah. to beat.
4: So I, be, I, I really focused on how do I tell the world he's a black Elvis? How do I get like girls screaming? and so Let me do concerts for women only. Yeah, I, I remember
2: a, that. I remember yeah, that. Let me give
4: that yeah. chocolate teddy bear lollipop so I can get a picture. Uh, of yeah, um,
2: I can tell you I, w- w- without doubt. I, you know, at the at the age of probably fifteen, sixteen, when uh, I, mean, I guess it was more like nineteen to twenty-two, when Teddy Pendergrass was 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 a huge thing. I had no interest in Teddy Pendergrass, but I remember the fact that he was putting on concerts for women only. So you know, maybe I should consider going.
4: Yeah, yeah, no. It was, I got so much heat for that. His lawyer, his lawyer resigned, um, threatened to resign. I brought him back in, but he said, "I'm not going to deal with the civil liberties suits. You're going to get so many lawsuits from the record company, threatened to drop them." But it uh, wasn't.
2: It wasn't real. It just was a marketing right campaign.
4: The guy wants to buy a ticket. I'm going to Yeah, let him yeah. Go. yeah. You know, but Teddy believed. Um, Ann Murray, you know, was yeah getting her next a picture with John Lennon in Hollywood
2: ne- Vampires right
4: yeah getting a, what i needed for her was credibility she had an amazing voice she had no credit she didn't no one knew who she was who was it was a voice so i if, i knew that if i could get a picture like that next to john lennon people are going to look behind the curtain who is yeah. this girl? yeah um, so rather than wait for it to happen you manufacture it
2: yeah yeah And uh, that worked pretty well. So that was your gift, your genius, was finding these ways to, um, you know, take uh, the vision of both you and the artist and then uh, implementing it. And then as you say, you know, create your own history.
4: Right, try and I always try, I always would tell the artist, my, my toughest part of my job is to get you what your appeal is to your audience in a couple of words. I need to get it down to a couple of words, you know. Yeah. With Teddy, it was sex.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Once I had that, I knew what the song should be. I knew what the stage show should be. I knew it should be women-only concerts. With Luther, it was romance. So with Luther, I did. Uh, he did live weddings on the air at all the R&B stations across the country. They'd run a contest.
2: Oh, that's right. He was a a, a, yeah. a minister. Right, right.
4: But no, not really. But he sang the song. Oh. So he- the minister would marry him on air, but Luther would sing the wedding songs. So he became the, he became the most played at weddings in America for years. Um, and it just, it, it, that's what I wanted his people, to when they said Luther, oh, my God, oh, my God, I had my child to Luther. <laughs> As opposed to Teddy, which was, oh, my God, I got head to Teddy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh man. All right. Let's take you back to your, your childhood. Born in Jackson Heights, uh, New York. Uh, by the way, you're the second person I've interviewed, uh, uh, that was born in Jackson Heights really? in the last week. Yeah. Waddy Wachtell, uh, was born no uh, in Jackson Heights oh, as well. It. So, uh, at 10, 18, 1945, I mean it, it, you are a true leading edge baby boomer. Yeah. Uh, you then moved to Oceanside, uh, which in Long Island is a young uh, boy. And it seems you, you kind of have a, a complicated family relationship. Um, difficult with your mother uh, and brother, uh, complete devotion to your father, and bitter contempt for the family dog, Skinny. Yeah,
3: yeah.
4: It's so funny because the uh, in, in the last few years, I've had such radical life changes. One is that my partner, uh, Katie, um, has a dog, Wookiee. Who I fell in love with it's the first dog I've ever oh. petted in my life
2: yeah because because oh, because of Skippy
4: yeah so at 71 the first dog I ever petted in my life and who I am so in love with and so like when I go on when I was going on the road I'd have a video of you to look at to go to oh. sleep because
3: was <laughs> to he wait. wasn't
2: in the bed with you oh my yeah. god that's yeah. huge That's that's absolutely huge. Because okay, so let's tell our diggers why Skippy looms so large. In
4: Skippy was a really angry dog. Um, Used to bite everybody. Bit our neighbors. Bit me. Bit my dad. Yeah. Um, But not your
2: brother. And not 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 your mother.
4: Veterinarian. And um, the pandemic has really brought us together. We zoom every week. And oh, good. Which has been really nice. um, With most. Most contact we've had in our whole lives has been the last few months, so it's been really nice. And his kids get on, and mine get on, and it's been beautiful. But I, as, as a child, I, um, I, I ended up in this very bizarre ballet, which was um, not really leaving my room too much. Very rarely leaving the room because the dog, I was scared of the dog. And the dog
2: had the run of the house.
4: And the dog sort of had the run of the house. Didn't have it as much as maybe it appears, but definitely had more of it than I had. And would escape from the utility room when it was in the utility. To get, to get to the freezer or garage, you had to go through the utility room, and that's where he would get stay um, night times. I was never home. I'd go to school, and then I'd play basketball to dark, so I didn't have to deal with him. I'd come home around uh, whenever it got dark and then i basically go to my room. Um, once in a while i come down and watch TV with my dad all in the family, yeah. or Sergeant Bilko.
2: Yeah, Sergeant Bilko, all right, yeah. And the
4: dog would just bark the whole time through the utility door. Um, so I, I had a, uh, a real phobia against dogs. Um, I, I never touched one, I never was with one, I never. And then this dog came in my life and I'm, <laughs> now I want to clone the dog. I found a place you can clone the dog oh it uh,
2: wookie yeah,
4: yeah oh could, my gosh the place in texas paul <laughs> was the first person to clone a dog
2: skippy uh well shep i can tell you that um uh that you don't need to clone the dog most <laughs> dogs you'll find are much more like wookie and less <laughs> so like skippy Especially if, you know, you can get them early enough so that yeah. you can train them uh, to, to give them the rules that they want to see in a, sure. you know, in a, in a, uh, a canine uh, human relationship. Uh, you know, it's sure. basically, yeah. let's face it, they're pack animals, they're looking for a leader, and if, if nobody's going to lead,
4: they're going to lead. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, Never yeah, yeah, yeah. somehow I jealous. think
2: you're going to have a lot more dogs in your life here.
4: Right? Very jealous of the baby yeah yeah oh
2: it's the dog very yeah. jealous of the baby yeah yeah, yeah there because he he was the baby
4: oh yeah yeah i tried to warn him i told him <laughs> month, i told him every night I said,
2: you're not gonna like this <laughs>
4: gonna be two. you gotta get prepared for this
3: <laughs>
2: yeah he'll he'll adjust
4: really we took both out to dinner the other night so first time out okay we All took right. the dog and, and i could see a mark change when we came back Oh um, really? Oh good. Good. felt good, like good. he was still a part of the family again. Like, oh,
2: okay. All right. Yeah. I'm not being replaced. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I get it. I get. it. All right, good. Good. You know, so was was music a thing in the house when you were growing up? Uh, you no, know. Not really. No. Not it was wasn't, no. it wasn't really your parents weren't into it. Your your brother wasn't uh
4: into brother it. Brother wasn't parents were. Radio wasn't
2: a big player. deal for you uh
4: TV was. More, TV. Yeah. I, we didn't even have a record player. Really? Didn't even have a record player? Maybe had one near the end. Uh When I got to college, I had a record player. But I still, I've never, my passion never was music. uh, What drew me to music was the ability to get rich and not get arrested at the Howard Johnson again. (laughs) That... You know, fate sort of let me into it. I never looked to do it.
2: Yeah, and you did put yourself in, uh, in uh, the danger of getting arrested uh, prior to going legit uh, many times. We'll get into that uh, in a second here. So um, uh, after college, you, you apply and uh, take a job as a juvenile counselor in Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, and that got you out to California. So the first question is, w- were you drawn uh, to the West beforehand? Or are, you know, what, what What was the reason for you to say, I'm leaving New York you know, and, and heading to the I, West I was, Coast, the left coast?
4: To, I was going to graduate school at the new school for social research. Didn't like it at all. Didn't like going to school. Buffalo, I never had to study. New school, I had to study. Hmm. And I just didn't. I was working for my cousin in a a place called divine garments during the day which was a place that made clothes for funerals no backs
2: oh that's right that's right
4: and it, it just wasn't no part of my life was working for me mm-hmm. uh, and into the school came a um, a uh, recruiter for the California probation department and it was when Ronald Reagan was a governor <laughs> yeah and yeah I, I would say that was my first white night moment where I thought of myself on a horse. I said, you know, I was a long hair. I was an acid head. Um, and I said, you know, I can go out there and save these kids because it was when people were getting put up against the walls every night at this, on the sunset Strip. And also there was that Mackenzie song, uh, flower in my hair. I'm going uh, to
2: oh, Al- San Francisco. Yeah. 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 Written by uh, John Phillips. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It all appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a good paying job, but I had a friend named Richie Lawrence, who had, uh, one of my uh, Buffalo, uh, schoolmates who went out and was producing a show for Les Crane, the Les Crane TV show was called, it was like a, a precursor to Johnny Carson. So he said I could sleep on his couch. So I had a nice. place to go.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: and. Um, off, I one of my white horse to save the world.
2: Yeah, for one day.
4: For one day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got there with, um, it's called Los Pedrinos Juvenile Hall. I believe it's still there. Yeah. And uh, it was mostly Latin, um, non speaking English. And uh, they, I got there, I had hair down past my shoulders. And uh, I could tell the police, the other you know, probation guys it into me. And they sent me out to play softball with the kids and I was the only guard. So the kids surrounded me and sort of made believe they were beating me up, but didn't really beat me up. Yeah. Um,
2: they just intimidated you
4: and, intimidated.
2: and uh, began to tell you who really was boss. Yeah, so I and got it out. wasn't you.
4: <laughs> I got out real fast, drove to LA, checked into a motel.
2: Yeah. Okay. So let, let's get to the motel. So, um, you uh this is the same day this is the same day right you 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 leave los padrinos you come into hollywood you end up on franklin and you find a hotel and basically uh, according to the book it was just the one that that said no vacancy
4: yeah Uh, i had called my friend there were no cell phones in those days no no if i could stay on his couch again and he didn't answer the phone so I thought that when I was driving back from those padrinos, I thought I would be staying with them.
3: Uh huh.
4: But I stopped at a couple of phone booths and he didn't answer. And I got off uh, the Hollywood Freeway on um, Highland, Highland La Brea, I forgot which. And um, I got I was in the right lane, and which forced me to turn right to, on, on Franklin. The, right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there was a motel that said vacancy lit up in neon. Yeah. Um, right next to the Magic Castle, although I didn't know at that time it was next to the Magic Castle. Yeah. And I pulled in and uh, they, I got a room. I think it was $22 a night.
2: Yeah. We uh, are, we were talking about the landmark, the landmark hotel. You know, yeah. We just yeah.
4: changed their name. I drove by it.
2: Yeah, they did.
4: They changed their name too. Um,
2: yeah, I think it's a chain. It's a, yeah. now part of a chain. Yeah.
4: And I got a corner suite. They only had a two bedroom they gave me for the same price as the one bedroom. Cause they, and it was, you know, like a, Hotel California, uh, three sides around the swimming pool, two story. Yeah. yeah, and um, I went out on the patio. I took some acid, got a pretty good buzz. Was thinking about how fucked my life was, uh, you know. And, yeah, the uh,
2: white night thing didn't work out the first the, tr- the first attempt. attempt. <laughs>
4: And I hear a girl screaming, and I just oh, look. the
2: White Knight appears, reappears. Yeah,
4: the White Knight again. It comes a chance to really do something good.
2: And I know you're not going to start off very well with this one either. Yeah.
4: So, so uh, I go down to the pool on my white horse, separate this guy from the girl. And the girl punches me. They were making love. They weren't. <laughs> she wasn't getting raped. She was willing. And um, so now I go back up to my room now and really like, oh, my life is so fucked. And I get up in the morning and I go down to the pool. humiliation
2: upon humiliation. Yeah.
4: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I hear this girl laughing and she said, are you the guy I hit? And at uh, the end of the story, it was Janice Joplin. And that's the motel where she died, unfortunately. But that was a couple of years later.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, well, whenever she was in LA, she stayed at the yeah, at the landmark. Sure. So uh, uh, that's uh, it, it's it's so serendipitous. It's yeah, no, it's true. literally cosmic uh, <laughs> because you know it's it's almost like divine intervention
3: yeah, in this
2: yeah. weird sort of way. And, and of course, I, you know, I'm sure you you know don't realize. Oh, this is my ticket. It's just oh, okay. I must have landed in a cool spot because yeah, <laughs> not true. only Janice but Jimmy. Hendricks and Jim Morrison, yeah, others, the, and the, the Chambers order. brothers, I think all yeah. become your friends. There, in the
4: right? next couple of days, they all started to show up and really, you know, my path was still the same. How do I get rich so I don't get put in handcuffs? Yeah. Um, and when I, all of a sudden I said, wait a second, I'm a dealer. That's what I did in Buffalo.
3: Mm.
4: Here's the greatest, I got the greatest customers in the entire oh. world. What am I crazy? So I, that's what I did. I started selling them stuff. And so that uh,
2: was the real entry into the business side with uh, uh with the rock stars of the day uh, was providing um their um extracurricular activities.
4: I was in pharmaceutical sales.
2: <laughs> yes, you were in pharmaceutical sales, that's it.
4: <laughs> uh-huh. Oh my gosh. Um and then and then somewhere along the journey, um which is interesting because it goes back to where we started our conversation, the difference between black and white in America. Um, Lester Chambers said to me, uh, I bought a car. I bought a 1954 Cadillac limousine. Don't ask me why, but crazy. So Lester said to me, uh, oh, what, what else do you do for a living? And I said, I don't do anything else. And he said, well, if the police stop you and ask you where'd you get the money for the car, what are you going to tell them? Mm. And I said, well, why would they stop me? And he said, are you kidding me? He said, if I, if I wear a new watch, there's a cop somewhere is going to say to me, where'd you get the watch kid? Wow. Um, and that's black America, right? White America, you don't have to think about it. Not at all. I mean, it was such a clear difference. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, Great. What should I do? I said you got it. And uh, Jimmy was. Uh, excuse me. Lester said I have. Um, I have this band in my basement. I think Jimmy said something like, "Are you Jewish?" One of them said, "Are you Jewish?" Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
4: And I said, um, "Yeah." And They said, "You should be a manager." <laughs> and I said, "Great. What's a manager do?" And they said, "Well, it gets the money and does stuff. Is it perfect? That's what I'm here for. I want the money." Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Alice Cooper was living in their basement. So they said, if yep. you can afford 10 or $20 a week, I think they'd let you say that that you manage them. So they went to Alice's and said, we found this Jewish guy and all the good managers are Jews and he can pay $20 a week. And we're in. <laughs> a,
2: a, a little stereotypical. Uh, but... <laughs>
4: And it's fifty-one years later, or something. It was still
2: <laughs> You're still doing it. <laughs> Semi-retired, but still, but still doing it. So, you know, of, of course, uh, all three of those names: uh, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, and Jimi Hendrix, and uh, uh, and Janis Joplin. Excuse me. Uh, you know, first of all, <clears throat> the fact is is that I, I think uh, when the when Alice and the boys uh, came to talk to you. They found you in a uh weed, yeah,
3: all there uh,
2: a smoked uh apartment and with the three of them sitting was, next to you as, all, as the counselors. It's, I think that was all
4: Lester's doing. I think he put that together to impress them.
2: Oh, yeah. I would impress the shit yeah. out of me, that's was, for sure.
4: They were all together at the same time in, in my place. Right. We were always built the pool. We never yeah. were in the apartment. Yeah. So I think Lester got, you know, did that for me. He
2: to uh, to build up your uh, yeah. uh, bona fides right, uh, right. for for Alice, which um, <clears throat> I'm at that time the L.A. Inca- incarnation of Alice Cooper band probably doesn't need a, a lot of build up uh, to a potential manager because they're not doing very well. No, it was,
4: per- it was the perfect front. I wouldn't have to work. Yeah. They they didn't do anything. <laughs> right, right, right. So for me, it was perfect. I wanted to keep my business going. I was making a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the music business was, there was no money.
2: We yeah. A it. lot of people don't understand that, especially in the, in the sixties. And even, even, even in its heydays compared to the movie the industry or
4: something like that. Nobody had, Jim didn't have a car. James yeah. Was, yeah, Nobody had a car. They didn't even have cars. Yeah. They're staying in a motel that's $20 a night.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That'll tell you everything you need to know.
4: Pretty good idea yeah
2: yeah if i can i mean I, I don't want you to delve into each one of them uh you know because you knew them but you know there's such luminaries in uh in in our our world um you know but yeah, maybe how were they with each other
4: you know my relationship with all of them except for the chambers brothers was very superficial mm-hmm. I, I can't really give you insight i mean janice was a party happy animal um, she always had a Southern comfort. She always had a guy. Mm-hmm. She was interested, to me, as a, as someone around that she was interested in either singing by the side of the pool or having a guy.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wanting, she, wanting to be loved. Um, yeah, you know, We, we know her history pretty well.
4: That's all she wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy was just a happy guy. He didn't talk much. Um, he was the other side. He always wanted a pretty woman. Mm-hmm. And they, they played, it was really, the dynamics around the pool were really interesting. Um, Arthur Lee from love. Oh yeah. When he would show up, he was the power figure.
2: Wow. That's crazy.
4: Everybody would turn to him for who, you know, okay, you do backgrounds, you take the lead you do, cause that's, you know, they all sit around the pool and jam. Yeah. Um, but he was the guy, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then there was the you know it was in it was Paul Rothschild was there, who was the producer for Janet yeah. and, and for the doors and for a lot of the acts, uh, Bobby Newworth, who was Bob Dylan's road manager, who became an artist on his in his own right. i be Bobby I became very friendly with all the chambers brothers, very friendly with um, all, all Bob, uh, Paul Rothschild, all the peripheral guys. Uh, Janice, I never was a sex object of. And that's the only way he sort of got into her sphere.
3: <laughs> right, uh, right.
4: And, on, and Jimmy was on the other side. So, you yeah. know. But yeah. It, was, it was funny. And, and then there were the bands that would come in and out all the time, Creedence, Clearwater stayed there. They would yeah. come back a lot. Pink Floyd came in. A lot of the British bands. The British yeah. bands.
2: I think cool. you, you managed Pink Floyd yeah, for like a, a
4: week. It was the, the groups that couldn't afford the Continental Hyatt House on sunset. Right. Yeah. Come, you know
2: They'd stay at the Landmark.
4: Yeah, they'd stay yeah. at the Landmark. Or yeah. there was one other motel on Santa Monica that had a 24-hour restaurant. I can't think of the name of it now. Right off La Cienega in Santa Monica. And it had a, a really cool restaurant that was open 24-7. And that was even lower end than the Landmark.
2: So that, that was the worst place to stay.
4: That was yeah, like, you know, the whole band would stay in one room.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You were really scraping the bottom of the barrel with that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Alice and Alice Cooper, the band, uh, the most famous client, uh, you have and still have to this day. Um, uh, who you kind of agreed to manage as we, we just realized, uh, uh through a drug deal or to front a drug dealing uh, at the time. Now we know the LA version of the Alice Cooper band was not very good, but they, they certainly had something. It, and it seems to me, the guys were channeling some sort of Dada-esque approach yeah, to performance yeah, would, in
4: the LA days. I would I would say I wouldn't use the word good. <laughs> like they, had, I, they were really. um, They had an amazing ability to piss people off.
2: Yeah, you know, if I like can.
4: Painting. They were what's that? They were like a Salvador Dali painting. Yeah, um, which which could irritate a lot of people. Like mm-hmm. in the, when Dali first came around, people in the art world just hated that stuff. So they, they always, what they had when I first saw them and I, Surrealism I, is, is what you're talking about. Yeah. It's real, really surreal. And first people who really combined rock and roll and surrealism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so unique. It, it, um, and, and so non-mass audience, its appeal was so narrow Um, because the music was as surreal as the images they were presenting. So a song would be, um, if you listen to Easy Action, or you, the first two albums, they're completely disjointed. um, One second thoughts, um, sort of like a Salvador Dali painting. Mm -hmm. This here, that's there. This is um, what, what, what really turned the tide for Alice was getting mainstream music to the surrealistic visuals. Yeah, and tying the two together was really Bob Ezrin.
2: Yeah, because when they, after after they moved to Detroit. Uh, get a little bit of a harder sound but you know the the funny thing that that I find interesting is that you know they, they weren't a, a bad band in Arizona I mean they were you know a yeah. well-established act uh, you know a garage band type of thing you know Rosary originally covers. the spiders uh, yeah, yeah and, and all of that and they, they yeah mostly covers uh, you know they were like the house band uh, and they would open for a, a lot of oh, uh, yeah. big touring acts uh, uh you know they uh, i know they uh, open for the yardbirds uh, for example in phoenix are they so? heroes that uh, those yeah. were they- yeah, and and they, uh, you know, that convinced them that they should, you know, try for the big time and and go to L.A. And I know that they they at first would come out, uh, you know, for weekend trips and things like that, and then they finally, as a group, decided, look, if we're really going to do this, we got to go out there. But I do really appreciate the fact that and i don't think people understand this about the alice cooper band is that they started off as an underground really serious art project mm. of trying to do something that is you know that had very little chance of any kind of monetary success um you know but for art for art's sake uh mm. and of course you know they get uh, signed by frank zappa who you know appears to be a, a good mentor and uh producer yeah. for that sort of music until you realize that, um, well, he signed him to straight records, uh, which I think we all know was kind of a tax uh, shelter, uh, more than anything else these days. I know the GTOs were also signed to, to straight. I, I was
4: gonna you know, I, I completely forgot about it, but, um, my first meeting up at the office, Miss Pamela and the girl saved my life. Oh really? Yeah. Um, Herbie came after me with the chair. That's right and it was the gtos who got between herbie and i and got me out of his office
2: yeah yeah when uh, when i think uh when when alice signed you you had to go to
4: her I had to go to her kane
2: and say hey i'm their new manager and he said fuck you you're not there and on and on and on, and on
4: huh? he was a tough guy he was like yeah. a bull
2: yeah, uh, that, that that Peter Grant, uh, Don Arden type of...
4: uh really guy. Tough guy. Yeah, yeah. He uh, literally
2: would string you out the window with, by your, by Absolutely, your
4: ankles. Absolutely, and, and laugh about it. And he, <laughs> up, he took his chair, broke it over his desk, and mm-hmm. came after me. And mm-hmm. the girl stepped in between, which was pretty wild. Thank God for the GTS. Yeah, thank God for the girl. <laughs> Miss Pamela, Miss Mercy. Uh... And, you know, a couple of them lived at the Landmark. Mm-hmm. Um, Miss Chris, uh, Miss Christine, Miss Christine lived at the landmark for a while.
2: Okay, all right. Yeah.
4: I don't know if she lived with someone or by herself. <laughs> she used to make me these amazing meals that were purple and yellow and orange and like these real. I, I can't remember what the foods were, but I remember how bizarre they looked. Great girls, they were all great girls.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now now we have a theory about the massive success of uh, the initial Alice Cooper band. And that really is that the guys were, were pretty good musically. They were just doing something really off the wall uh, in L.A. trying to they got caught up in the freak movement, which a lot of people don't know about in, in L.A., which is kind of like you think hippies are are Weird and crazy to mainstream uh, America, yeah. Look at the the freak movement uh, in the, in the 1960s, and uh, you know there's a there's a, a gay side of that, and uh, um, cross dressing, uh, you know, and things like that, and and of course the GTOs also helped uh, Alice first build this, uh, this image of, of, of all of that. Yeah. Which is, you know, early it's, it's beginning to happen a little bit in, in, in the UK. That's what we might call early glam, uh, scene, which never really translates over to america in real time it's not till later that people go back and go oh you know david bowie and mark bole and t-rex and all that great uh, great stuff but at the time they they don't get it it's just not john wayne gi joe uh america doesn't fit uh very well for the for the times and i think that's kind of some of the things that alice i don't know if they were consciously doing that but they moved to detroit and i i think you kind of helped push that basically you knew they had to get out of LA that they needed to go and I think uh, the way the story goes is that you said hey look we're all gonna do this together we're all gonna do this until we're each millionaires and we're gonna get on the road and we're gonna go city to city and the first place where they stand up and give us a standing ovation that's where we're gonna stay
4: and it was Detroit and that was
2: Detroit where the sound is much harder than anything you're gonna see in the West Coast. This is this is this is the uh the territory of the MC5 and the Stooges. Yeah. You know, this is in your face rock and roll. And so I think and 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 Alice was originally born in in Detroit. So yeah. it makes sense why you guys would would end up there. But would you say that's where the sound began to you know, solidify. Whereas earlier in LA, uh, you know, there was a disconnect between the visuals and, and the music, and that the music could now in this hard rock vein, be more translatable to an American audience. Oh yeah,
4: absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, LA was a, a time of, um, put flowers in your hair. So, um, and, and, the Freak Movement was a complete rebellion against that. Yeah. But it wasn't, but it, it was only a rebellion against there, it. it was, and
2: very it small, very, and, very small. I mean, like there, there's maybe and 300 it, and it people.
4: Quarry, it, and it, it was almost to irritate rather than um, it, it almost, the music was almost meant to be an irritation mm. as, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to a Jefferson airplane or, a, you know. So you know, it's a beautiful day and a violin. And we love you, and this was like fuck you. <laughs> yeah. And when um, when they got to Detroit, they found a way to express that angst in music that, that that really was comfortable to them. They were Yardbird freaks, so they they were much more into the rock and roll than they were into the experimental sounds.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, and in Detroit, they, they heard other people doing it, and they started to find their voice. Right. right. Well, the yep. way I talk about finding my who mm-hmm. I am, mm-hmm. started to find how they, could, um, how they could keep their surrealism, keep their art, and have music that drove it rather than um, sort of stop people from enjoying it. They saw that they had an opportunity to make it, and that that drove them to wanting people to like their music. In the beginning, they enjoyed people walking out on them. That was their claim to fame. Whether that was self confidence, or you know, um, self well,
2: it was probably part of the art project.
4: Is uh, part of the art project.
2: You know, it's it's like uh, you know, it's a it's like a like a Mapplethorpe, uh uh photograph. Uh, you know, they got the
4: Detroit. They found it, uh, a group of musicians with the same kind of angst they had mm-hmm. who were expressing it in some ways in the same way they were. but you know iggy was was a living art piece,
0: yeah. Um,
4: so they saw you know people doing it, and it just it was a great sense of community. Um, yeah, you know, MC5 and I think it was like a living art piece. They were all living art pieces.
2: Oh, very political uh, art yeah. piece uh, as well, and you know, probably probably the most political band of the '60s, and people seem to tend to forget that. Uh, but uh, you know, you mentioned a name that I, I want to bring up because I think that that is the the pillar, uh, you know, beyond yourself and and the and the guys that really creates the Alice Cooper band, and that is Bob Ezrin.
4: Yeah, yeah, very important part.
2: Yeah, because I mean, this is a guy who understands music that uh, understands how to, you know, take um, you know maybe uh, uh, difficult uh, themes, but put it in a package that uh, is is sellable.
4: Yeah, yeah, knows how to put it in the picture frame. Yeah,
2: I I didn't know um, uh, until I I read the book that he <laughs> had zero experience until. Yeah, you guys walked in the door. Uh, so tell us, because it, awesome. I, I think originally you wanted Bob Richardson to uh, yeah, to it, who, who had done the Guess Who, an American woman and things like that.
4: Yeah, we wanted Jack Richardson. And, um, I'm sorry, Jack Richardson. Yeah, it's, he, um, we went through a process. Funny, I ended up managing Burton Cummings later on in life.
3: Yeah.
4: A little artist, but um, the exercise that we had was we, we sort of got to Detroit and we realized that we have to have a hit record or this thing isn't going to live. It's so like not watering the flower, it's going to die. And the water is a hit record. It's the only thing that was going to allow this thing to survive. So we thought about, um, who makes records that we love that don't involve a band because we felt like the Beatles are the Beatles. They had their music, the stones of the Stones. But what, then we started looking at other groups, and the group that we hit on was the Guess Who, who no one had ever seen in concert at that point. They were a Canadian band, nobody knew anything about them. But these records, American Woman, um these guys,
3: the yeah, best records yeah.
4: That we had ever heard. Mm-hmm. So we said, Hey, if we can do it for someone no one ever heard of, let's find let's look oh it's Jack Richardson, I'm going to where is he? Toronto? I'm going to Toronto. We're going to get him. Um, and when we, he didn't want any part of us. We, we were very persistent and Bob had just started working. So Bob's job was to get rid of us, say no. And, um, we got Bob to come to New York and he got, he got, he joined the army and he went back to Jack and said, listen, if you want to fire me, fire me, but we should do this. And, um, so they did the first one together, but it was really Bob who did it.
2: Yeah. And out of that comes I'm 18, yeah. uh, which, you know, it's a, it's anthemic, uh, you know, a perfect song for a perfect time. Uh, you a, know,
4: perfect, a perfect um, surrealistic statement. Uh, you know, it, it really, it was a complete extension of the Alice Cooper show. mm, uh, mm. But Alice Cooper wasn't what we were trying to say, you know, I'm 18 and I don't like it. And I'm, you know,
2: don't know where to go. Don't know, know what to, to do. Go. Yeah. It's, so, uh, a doing yeah. It. <laughs> still a boy and still a man. Uh, yeah, there's just so much universal truth, uh, yeah. in, in that song. Um, so, uh, you, we talked a little bit about create uh, history. Don't wait for it to happen. Uh, a couple of examples um, I think uh, are the chicken story. Uh, did you really bring the chicken?
4: Yeah, I didn't bring it. It was there. It, it was, was just
2: there in the, in the backstage area. Yeah,
4: backstage, I put it in a burlap bag and threw it up on stage.
2: <laughs> and what happened?
4: Uh, Alice thought it could fly. So we, I mean, the, we used to end the show by taking a feather pillow, opening it up and then putting a CO two tank on it. So the feathers would cover oh, throw
2: everywhere, yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: The lights would hit the feathers. And um so a chicken seemed obvious to me in the middle. Mm-hmm. Make it more fun. Saw so the chicken. He thought it could fly through it out and it didn't fly, so it got mutilated.
2: Yeah, thrown back at him. Which a <laughs> uh, big Began the legend of, you know, Alice Cooper bites the head off a chicken. Uh, you know, he and Frank Zappa got into a shit eating contest. I mean, these are the things we talked about on the playground, oh, yeah, yeah. which, which again fits into the anything that your parents are going to hate. Well, geez, not only is the reality, it's the mythology that really is going to create uh, that. Because, uh, you know, as we've all known, none of those stories were really true. The the chicken was an accident.
4: As you do about biting the head off of something. Yeah, yeah,
2: he well, he thought he was biting the head off a rubber bat. He didn't know somebody had thrown a real bat
4: out there. <laughs>
3: he
2: he he paid for it with uh, 20 shots to the abdomen, you know, so is that true? <laughs> Yeah. So th- there's the chicken story and then uh, the other uh, that that really you know, we have to talk about is the panties um, uh, for uh, um for the album uh, uh Schools Out.
4: Well, uh, and that yeah. was your idea. Um well I, I was part of a team. You know, it's easy to, to take credit for stuff. Yeah. Um, there was a great team called Pacific the Guy in here, who did um Cheech and Chong's big bamboo. Yeah,
2: yeah, with I, the uh uh the uh, the big giant rolling paper
4: yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. Um and they were just fantastic. So we started to talk to them about doing the album cover and they came up with the idea of the school desk, which I thought was just fantastic. Yeah. Um and then we started talking about what would you like to see if you opened up the desk? What would really piss off some a parent? What would really get them to, you know. And I said, What about if it was a girl's panties? In in the thing that I, I think I said, somebody said it, I think I did. And Alice always credits me with it, but I don't know.
2: In in the in the age of hip hop, that seems so tame, but people yeah. need to know that. In, oh my God, those
4: days! In oh.
2: those days, holy crap! Where uh, you came
4: from for me was, I always um, was an avid reader in news, and um, I, I especially quirky stories, National Enquirer, crazy stuff. So I'd read about this. Um, Confiscation of flammable panties at the docks in Baltimore it was just this really weird story in the New York Times that they confiscated 250,000 pairs of paper panties at customs because they weren't uh, non flammable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were flammable. Yeah. And it sort of stuck in my head somewhere that I said I could use this someplace. This is funny. So when the desk came up, I thought of the panties and I said, wow, let me see if I can get everybody to buy into them, but I won't tell anybody. And I, I can plant, I can get it busted, um, in Baltimore cause they've already done it once.
2: Yeah. They're, they're on the lookout.
4: <laughs> on the lookout. If I buy those same panties mm-hmm. from the same place and ship them to the same place, I can tip them off. And, um, I said, how great would it be to, you know, have the biggest panty raid in history? The Alice Cooper pa- panties. I, so, um, I didn't, it, 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 it the story is, it, it, got, you know, sometimes so cop, the, uh, the idea is easy.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, is the difficult part.
2: Yeah. 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 Inspiration so,
3: is a 1%, 99%. And, um.
4: Gave them the idea and um, they they came back to me and said, it's too expensive. We can't do it. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, we'll pay for it. They said, we can't do that because then we're going to have problems with other artists. Um, And it was basically, you know, in my brain, it was, fuck you.
2: This is what we want. Right.
4: So um, there were two, only two companies that made album covers back in those days. Hmm. One company called Ivy Hill Lithographs
3: mm-hmm.
4: and um, Album Graphics, I believe was the other one. And each of them had contracts with different record companies. So Ivy Hill did every Warner Brothers act, every single album cover. If you look on it in the little print at the bottom, at least up till that album is Ivy Hill Lithograph. Every cover. Mm-hmm. They, every- Every cover. So, um, the guy who was the head of the department said, no, you can't do it. We won't let you pick up. So I went to album graphics and I said, how would you like to break the hold on Ivy Hill and Warner brothers? Here's the price I need for this album. So they agreed to the price to bust.
2: Yeah. Get into the business with Warner brothers. Right.
4: And they say, no. And what do you mean? No. you said it was this price. I got you the price. No. It's our record company. No, get out, kid. Get out of here. So, um, I had a really good friend that, what was his name? He was the big dope dealer, big dope lawyer, Bob. He was partners with Kardashian, Robert Kardashian. Yeah. Um, He's the guy who represented OJ, Robert Shapiro.
2: Oh, Shapiro. Oh, yeah. Okay.
4: So I went to Shapiro and I I said, you know any good detectives? Because something smells, there's something smells here. And I told him the story and he said, oh, yeah, the guy's on the take. And so I need a detective. And um, he got me that really famous guy who just did the uh, Saudi Arabia, Jeff Bezos guy. I can't think of his name, but anyway. Pelicano? No. No, he's the one who went to jail. Yeah. Oh. So, um, and uh, he came up with the deed for the house that the guy lived in. It was owned by Ivy Hill lithograph. Well, well, well. So I went into his office. I shut the door. And I said, and I threw it on his desk. And I said, now what do you want to do? And he, just, he never forgave me. He busted my balls for the next 10 years. But there was nothing he could do. You got so panties
2: he, on the record.
4: You got Ivy Hill to do it for the price that album graphics said they would do it. Not. Right. It's one of it done. Um, so that started the journey. What I didn't tell anyone, including him, was that um, I was going to order 200,000 panties from the same place to come through the same week as the album was released. But for Warner Brothers, I put them with a the Canadian company to buy the panties. That mm-hmm. were non flammable. So uh, there was a reporter named uh, Zito, Tom Zito, who was the entertainment reporter for the Baltimore Sun, I think the paper was called. You can Google it and you'll see mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. And I called him up and tipped him off. <laughs> <laughs> I told him the truth. You know, I said, But it's a great story.
2: Oh, yeah. It's a great and story. Yeah.
4: Front page of the Baltimore Sun. Was biggest panty raid in history. <laughs> <laughs> the guy at Warner Brothers and Joe Smith called me up. Freaked out. We shipped seven hundred thousand of these albums out with the panties. Now we have to recall them all because. They're not flat I said, no no, no 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 no, no <laughs> only <You're-> only <laughs> only a small fraction none of them, none of them ever got to the albums, yeah, <laughs> oh they
2: oh, yeah, it was just just the coming in uh, to create the headlines, and what Joe didn't realize is uh, the uh, the ads but, and marketing you know that went along with I it, it was
4: well anyway, yeah, I couldn't trust anyone <laughs> yeah. to to not give it if it you know so yeah, um, and the album went platinum in like a second, and oh yeah, I yeah. still get uh you still someone, get
2: panties? <laughs> someone,
4: anyone, Where is it? With the original panties on it. I don't know where I put it, but I have it here. Someone, someone just guy from England just sent me one with the original panties.
2: Hard to find. Yeah. A collector's really item for sure. For sure. <laughs> so another artist that you famously managed was Teddy Pendergrass. We mentioned yep. him a little bit earlier, but in 1982, P- Teddy was involved in a horrible car accident that left him uh, paraplegic and almost died uh in fact i think you thought for sure he was going yeah, to die right 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 around the, the time of the accident but you continued to work and keep him um you know attached to this to this world and, and most famously um the live aid uh, yeah, appearance that that uh is really pulls at the heartstrings yeah. right? Um, tell us, tell us about how you made that happen.
4: You know, he, um, we didn't want any, we didn't want people to be able to write their own story about Teddy. We wanted to, we wanted to control the narrative and part of controlling the narrative we felt was absolutely no information, no exposure, no pictures, nothing. Um, we never said a word. Cause we wanted that first time when he came to be really powerful mm-hmm. and for us to be able to tell our story, not a story of sympathy, not people feeling sorry for him. Um, we wanted, um, we wanted to keep his respect level. Um, and, um, when I heard they were doing live aids, Harvey Goldsmith was one of the promoters of it. And he was, um, the fellow I use in England for all the Teddy shows and Alice's shows.
0: Yeah.
4: I called him up and he said he would put him on. And uh, then we called Ashford and Simpson, who were gracious enough to work with him. And um, I think Teddy in the beginning was sort of excited about it, but a little nervous. Mm-hmm. But I knew this was the right moment. This was the way for him to be reintroduced to his fans um, in an important uh, way that. Um, that I knew I wouldn't get a lot of opportunities for. Yeah. This was a sold out baseball stadium in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, the Brad,
2: second, the second side you had, uh, uh Wembley and, yeah. uh, and, and Philly, uh, on and that
4: Philly, day. And that, was the most important one because that was hometown. Yeah. And I didn't want them to see him in a half filled thousand seat hall, or a, this was the way that Teddy Pendergrass should come back yeah. to it.
2: With billions of people watching. All
4: over the world. Um, and um, they rehearsed. I felt pretty good about it. And um, he got a little scared going up. Um, it was, a, you know, going up the ramp. and His family was pushing him. And I could just see in his face that he really he didn't want to be there. And um, I went over to him and he, he, he just said, Chef, I don't know if I can do this. I don't think I have the... The lung power to do this, and I said, "You know, Teddy, um, you don't have to do anything except sit there. If you don't feel like singing, don't sing. But you're going out on that stage. We came this far. We're finishing this, and rolled him out. <laughs> and uh, he came up to the moment, and he was. There's a beautiful documentary on show, on Showtime on Teddy that I would encourage everyone to watch.
2: Yeah." That's really creating history, uh, yeah. Shep, in, in, in the most lovely way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, um, I'm sure, uh, Teddy, rest in peace, uh, smiling down on you for forcing, yeah. forcing that one to, to happen.
4: Bob just turned, I think, 102 a couple of days ago.
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
4: Really? yeah. Yeah. Great woman, really great woman, Ida. Always accepted me right from the first second.
2: She, she knew you were you were going to be a good guy that you were right. going to help her her son. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So after music, you get into movies. Uh, and by the way, really fucking cool movies. Uh, like Kiss of the Spider Woman, uh, Koyanotsky, uh, which is always impossible for me to say. Uh, Philip Glass, great movie. Uh, and a personal favorite of mine. Ridley Scott's directorial debut, The Duelists. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what drove you to film other, other than, you know, it's, it's kind of a natural extension from the music industry?
4: Uh-huh. Uh, I, you know, for me, it was another white knight moment. My whole really? life was white knight moment.
2: <laughs> Whether they work or not, yes. <laughs> Whether
4: they work or not, yeah. Um, had this, um, this wonderful lady named Carolyn Pfeiffer who was our PR lady in England um, very important in Yeah she
2: she worked with Derek Taylor right
3: is it
4: No is, no, no. Okay. She, had her own, she had her own company it was called Carolyn Fife public relations mm-hmm. and she represented everybody i mean like everybody you know mm. uh, Mick Jagger the Beatles that apple store um Omar Sharif um it just every everybody like everybody um, all the heavyweight, you know, um, Charlie Chaplin, um, serious, all serious, like serious, and did serious events. She she opened the Apple boutique. She uh, did the wedding of Jagger in France. Uh, big worldwide events around the world, really great, right? Right. A great lady, mm-hmm. and really important in Alice's career. And she had a daughter um charlie chaplin was the godfather of the daughter and um i think jagger and chaplin were the two godfathers
2: yeah the the billion dollar baby
4: the billion and it was the baby on the cover mm-hmm. uh, Alice's album billion dollar babies and shortly after taking that picture the baby died a crib death. yeah um, carolyn worked out of her home her office in her home in one place and she just didn't want to go back. Um, she needed a, a life to change. And she called me up and um, asked if she could come work for me. And um, I loved her, I said yes. And um, that's how um, I got, Raquel came into the office with her. Raquel Welsh. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Who you helped revive her career to become a singing and dancing her. star in Vegas.
4: Sarah Miles came in with her. A bunch of her clients came with her. Mm hmm. And after about a year or two, I could just see she wasn't really happy managing. Just wasn't her forte. Um, She wasn't, um, she was less interested in economics than I was. She had almost no interest in economics. Um, Her interest was getting the job done. Um, And wasn't a negotiator, none of that kind of stuff that you need in the management world. So we talked about what you wanted to do and what you wanted to do is make movies. So, um, I asked her who she could learn from and there was a young man named David Putnam who she represented. He was a partner with Sandy Lieberson. They were, um, backed by the Rothschild family Oof! and they, there's they, some money. <laughs> they had Stardust. That'll be the day. Yeah. It was great movies. Um, it really were the first of that genre. Um, so I said, well, let's see if we can hire him to teach how to make movies. Cause I had rock and roll money. Yeah. just so happened. He had ended his relationship with the Rothschild and I was able to hire him to, um, come in and start a, a division we call the live films. And, um, we, uh, I knew nothing. I mean, truly nothing. So, once he came in, I, I negotiated a salary assessment. uh, How do we make movies? So, we got a, it's going to cost us uh, millions of dollars to make a movie that I, I don't have millions of dollars.
2: Yeah, I, I could cover a salary. I don't know about a budget or for, a, for a top so flight film.
4: We, he said, You know, so many people love Carolyn. Let's go talk to a few of them. Um, so, we went. There was a fellow named David Picker, whose dad had started United Artists. He was, the picker of United Artists. Mm -hmm. And he was now the president of Paramount Pictures. And we went into his office, and I had no idea how what happened never happens in life. I thought this was like normal. (laughs) And uh, we walk in, and David starts talking. David says, uh, Picker says, David, stop for a second. Is this about Carolyn? And we said yes. And he said, I'll do anything for Carolyn. Let's make this meeting really short. You got a million dollars from me. Make any movie you want to make, as long as Carolyn produces it. And we got out of his office. I said to David, That's "Pretty good." He said, "Pretty good." I've never heard of it in my lifetime. Um, yeah,
2: it just doesn't work that way. <laughs>
4: and the movie was the Duelist. Uh, yeah, David had uh, had a desire to do it before he came to us, and he brought it in and. Um, that Was our first movie, won the Control Film Festival,
2: yeah. Um, not a huge box office success, uh, it's a cult, uh, classic. Uh, I, I happen to well, think it's, it's a beautiful
4: movie. Here's what happened. here's what happened. <laughs> so I had we, we learned the film business in real the, on both ends,
0: real was, quick.
2: <laughs> one movie,
4: <laughs> we win the con film
2: Festival. Yeah,
4: gigantic,
3: yeah, Just gigantic, yeah.
4: So now. Gridley, David. I don't even think I win. I don't remember. I don't think I was there. I think Carol was there. But they called me up. We won the the Festival. Holy shit! So we start talking on the phone. We say, "This is a minute. now we got everybody by the balls." Yeah. We, oh, see, you, you, what you won? You won
2: uh, like um, best new artist right. uh, uh, that one, not not the Palm Door, but right. the That's best the new artist. Yeah, yeah.
4: Best directed or best yeah. movie? Yeah, yeah. Holy shit, we got the studio by the balls. Yeah, they're gonna want us to make hundreds of movies now. We just like the Duelist, right? We got it. <laughs> so, uh, movie hadn't been released. No one had seen it. So they we arranged to show the movie to David Picker. Um, coming back really proud. We won the festival. Let's make five more. but up. Here we go. And during the weekend flying back from Cannes, David got fired. And Barry Diller and Michael Eisner got put in his heads of the studio.
2: Horrible. Horrible. Horrible people. Those are bean counters, not artistic uh, souls.
4: <laughs> this is my first screening room experience. I've never even been in a screening room. We go to Paramount. We go into this theater that has probably 30 seats. And it's Ridley, David, myself, and Carolyn, and uh, a guy sitting at a desk, and then some projectors in the back. And um, we wait five minutes, we wait 10 minutes. All of a sudden, we hear a door. As we hear the door, the lights go down. But we could hear some people, somebody came in. Shuffling in, right. They start the movie. We're into the movie, maybe 15 minutes. And the lights come back on and the movie stops. We turn around. And this guy stands up says, Hi, my name is Barry Diller. Um, I know we haven't met, but um, we took over the studio from David. Um, this is my partner, Michael Eisen. We came here from ABC television. And the one thing we don't really like is this kind of artsy shift. <laughs> So um, we're just not going to release it, but thank you for all your efforts for the company. And left the room, never even shook our hands. We never introduced, it, and they never released the movie. They went, uh, they released it one week in Boston so they could qualify for a pay fee TV, TV deal. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's where I saw it was like on HBO or something. Yeah, like. We
4: never that. had a chance to see if there was an audience or no audience. No. That was our first.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Not fun, Shep. Not fun. Because uh, there is a lot of work by a lot of people that go in to make a, a movie. Uh, and uh, and it's a beautiful,
3: it's a beautiful
0: movie. movie.
2: It's, it's a film. A cinematography is just yeah. Extraordinary. It, it reminds me, you know, what makes a good double feature with that? Barry Linden. Uh, yeah, Kubrick's yeah. Barry Linden. That, that makes a great yeah, they, double feature for all you out there. Out there. <laughs> What's that?
4: It was Keith Carradine and Albert. And,
2: uh, no, uh Keith Carradine and uh, Harvey Keitel.
4: And, and I think Albert was in there too, I think.
2: It, is Albert in?
4: Oh, maybe not. Maybe just yeah, Harvey. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Great, great movie. Great
4: movie. Yeah.
2: So you're making movies. Uh, and whether you went to Cannes that particular year or not, you did end up in Cannes yeah. uh, many times. But this takes us to this next huge piece of your life. Um, uh, you end up at the uh, Le Moulin uh, uh, yeah. des Mougins, yeah. uh And you meet uh, the father of uh, French Nouvelle Cuisine, Cours- uh-huh. uh, Roger Verger. Yeah. And that totally changes your life in a single night because you're you're gonna i'm gonna have you tell the story but you meet him he asks you if you're a cook in his broken english and you say no and he goes well you know to be a cook you got to go to one of these two schools and you go to both of them in a year so tell us so tell us about meeting because this is it's it is extraordinary and talk about you know the fact that this is you know celebrities at its finest. Um, I think, um, James Coburn helped Roger, uh, develop this restaurant. uh, uh, Right.
4: He was his first guest. Mm Yeah. He was doing a movie in Monte Carlo and he stopped, he went by for lunch, just happened to drive by and never left because there were rooms upstairs. So he just ended up living there for the movie. But yeah, I got, I, I got taken to the, um, to the Mulan it was in the hills outside of console. Um, all the studios, that's where they would take the winners. And that's where the celebrities would go there. That was the restaurant it would be like, um, Spago in LA yeah. after the Academy Awards or something. Um, and, um, everybody was in there. It was uh, Anthony Quinn, James Coburn. I think Streisand was there that night. Um, but, but
2: not Pablo Picasso.
4: Not probably.
2: (laughs) As we know now. (laughs)
4: uh, And um, this beautiful man walked in the room, really peaceful and really quiet. And by then, on my journey, I had sort of come to the realization that uh, if I didn't change my life, it was probably going to end up hitting a wall. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was enjoying every second of my time on the planet. But I realized that. the projectile wasn't a healthy one.
2: Yeah. You're traveling at a hundred miles an hour, which you might be and able to get ahead. away with in your twenties and maybe yeah. your thirties, but you start hitting 40 and, uh, the, the squ- the car starts getting squirrely.
4: But I didn't know where, you know, um, what, what path I wanted to take, how to take the path, what the journey was. And then I saw him walk in the room and he was just this very
3: <clears throat>
4: light, happy presence smiling and obviously the power person in the room everybody else got silent james coburn got up and hugged him quinn hugged them everybody got up and went over to him um their whole attitudes changed when he was in the room um and i've always been attracted to power i've always been attracted it's just been very attractive to me fame and power Mm -hmm. there's usually a reason for both you know and Um, I love seeing what that reason is and seeing if I can learn.
2: Trying to figure it out,
4: right. Um, So when I saw him, I said, that's who I want to be. I want to be the guy with the smile who everybody wants to be next to, um, who seems to do it in a way that makes people happy. Yeah. They all are happy to meet him. It's not like my meetings in Hollywood where you meet, you know, you go to the palm and you meet an important guy, but you're not happy to meet him. You have to meet him you know, you have to say hello. Yeah. That's the world I came from. Yeah. Who's richer? Who's more important? Who's this was a chef and they were all bowing to him. It was like, um, all these
2: and, great celebrities. Yeah.
4: Yeah. All the yeah. people I really was emulating. So I waited until after service and I went over to him and I, uh, there was a show called Kung Fu. Yeah. They, they, uh
2: With, uh, Keith Carradine's brother, David Carradine,
4: yeah, who, um, was the grasshopper for a wise, old, blind Buddhist teacher Yeah, who would sit at his feet, call himself the grasshopper to learn from the master.
2: When, when you can take the pebbles out of my hand, that will be the time for you to leave. Exactly. Yes.
4: <laughs> so um, I told Mr. Verger that I didn't know his name, but I told him that I wanted to be his grasshopper. And he had no idea what I was talking about.
2: Very yeah. uh, American sort of, yeah. uh, of yeah. symbolism that, uh, uh, I'm sure a French chef had no clue what you're talking about.
4: But, um, I told him that I'd like to be, you know, hang out with him. And he asked me if I could cook and I, I didn't cook at that time at all. I was a macaroni and ketchup kind of guy. Wow. And wow. Yeah. And, um, he gave me the names of some schools and said, uh, if I had learned to cook, he'd let me work in the kitchen with him for a day or two. Mm-hmm. I went and I came back the next year, and he had no idea who I was. <laughs> he no <laughs> I'm
3: back.
4: I'm back. Here I am. And you and
2: completed, I think, Cordon Bleu and. Uh,
4: you no, know, it was um, Marcella Hansen's two week course in Italy and um, at the uh, Oriental Hotel in Bangkok. Can't think of the name of the cooking school now. But it was a fellow's name also, and that was a two-week course. So I took both of those courses, came back. And, um, he said he was really sorry he was leaving from Bangkok. He was cooking at the Oriental Hotel on a promotional visit, and I asked him if I could go with him, and he looked to me like I was completely- a. <laughs> <laughs> but he said yes, because he always says yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I went with him, and that really started our journey.
2: Yeah. I think, is it there where you discover that the chefs are are treated poorly outside of their well, own it restaurants? It was there, but
4: it was over the course of the next seven or eight or 10 years of our relationship. I would just, for the first five or six, I I never looked behind the curtain, it's like not going backstage. Yeah. And then as I started looking, I could see that, holy shit. Um, and the demand was gigantic. You know, he, people revered and they would come and, wherever we'd go would sell out. Um, so I realized that they just had, you know, they were like wandering minstrels
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: where their record before recording artists got organized.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So let me ask you um, like, you know, as a, uh, somebody who, who does a fair amount of cooking and i have been most of my life so i've got a fairly educated palate but as you just said you were a macaroni and ketchup kind of guy mm-hmm. uh and this is into your 40s and now you decide that you are going to uh, uh engage in not just enjoying fine dining but uh but creating it uh, as well so you know how how did that go for you did did you it feel great. like you like it like really felt uh, like i found my passion bad. Yeah, that's
4: Whatever, what I mean. It, it, music or film. Yeah. You take it or leave it. Cooking, I mean, I cook every day.
2: Yeah. You know? So if I were to pose the question of, uh, you know, if you could do your life all over again with all the success you've had in music, film, and the culinary arts, you would choose the culinary arts?
4: Well, I would say I'd do, I'd do exactly what I did.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, but I probably would have, um, I would have liked to develop, develop my culinary arts at a younger age. And see mm-hmm. where it went to, but I man, I wouldn't change. What your my journey's been amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think um, each one built on the next one. So,
2: yeah, it is. Uh, it is a journey, and and you know, in a nice way. Uh, you know, uh, you know, as as you and I know, uh, regardless of how awesome or uh, amazing your job may be to other folks. Uh, after a while, any job becomes, you know, rote and and boring and, you know, you, you need new stimulation. And so, you know, luckily from music it brought you to film, which probably uh, provided a a whole new level of excitement and interest and uh, uh, new learning. And then the same with, uh, with food. And I think the, with the, with the three, you know, the, the food side of things is just so human. Um, You know, uh, I I don't know if I could live my life uh, without, music, I, 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 it would be difficult to live my life without movies, and I, I'm, I'm maybe even more of a movie buff than I am a music uh, person, uh, which will surprise uh, some of my listeners here. But, um, uh, but food is just everybody, you know, uh, you know, engages in that one way or another uh, on the entire planet. There, there's, you cannot escape that fact. So, you know, to come at that even late at life, um must be just uh, you know uh, uh, uh you know a gift that just keeps on giving
4: yeah no, no, it's fantastic
2: yeah,
4: and yeah. You, and it, um it, it keeps you of service you know you cook someone a meal you're of service yeah yeah um,
2: yeah yeah and cool. uh it's you know and and there's so so much immediate gratification pride
4: you know after cool. the fact you know it's, it's sort of in buddhism they they build these sand mandalas mm. Um, and then they take them to the water and, and yeah. it's, it's sort of the very lesson ephemeral of, and it's the lesson of nothing is permanent.
2: Yeah. Impermanence. Yeah.
4: Everything yeah. Is in, you know, and, um, what I love about it, um, I spent my whole life doing things that last forever. You make a movie, it lasts forever. Um,
2: you make a record. It lasts forever. Yeah.
4: You yeah. Meal, it's over. That's the
2: opposite. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
4: So you On get to one. your art, you get to make your statement, and then,
2: yeah, it's and, done.
4: Yeah,
2: <laughs> hey, interesting. I'll think about that. So, um, as as I said, you discovered that these guys, just you know, these world famous chefs like emerald Lagasse, uh, uh you know, uh, Roger Verge-, Verge, um, that they were not being treated. Uh, in the level of respect that they should have been, they were being taken advantage of. When you get right down to it, and you did something about it.
3: You know, man, so I, tell I, us
2: kind of how that happened, because I think you kind of got you kind of got thrown into it. Uh, I think you went to a meeting where you thought maybe a couple of people were going to be there and talk about it, and there's 35 or 40 chefs there, including okay. people like Alice Waters, yeah. uh, you know, from Chez Panisse up here in San Francisco or, or Berkeley, uh, are there going? Shep, you need to help us.
4: Yeah. Yeah, we had a bunch. San Francisco was top with uh, Jonathan. Trying to up blanking on the other guy's name. But yeah, it was um you know, it was so obvious to me that they just um they needed they needed to build highways to their audience. They were no different than uh, Michael Jackson. Um, but Michael Jackson would have been a wandering minstrel if there weren't MTV record players, radio stations. So we needed, for these chefs, we needed ways to touch their, all they had was their restaurants. The only way you could touch an emerald and touch a Wolfgang was to go into their physical restaurant. You, there was, there was no other way to touch them. And if in order to monetize their brand, they had to be able to touch people. Um, So the Food Network, I was helpful in getting on the air, Mm -hmm. broadcast
3: Mm
4: -hmm. things like emerald spices. So when you went into the store, it's really funny for years, I, I kept saying, um, when you'd walk into a supermarket, the only person you'd see was Aunt Jemima.
2: Yeah. Or Chef Boyardee or, uh,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. no more, shit. no more Aunt Jemima.
4: (laughs) so that would be like going into a record store and the only thing you hear is generic choirs
2: uh yeah or andy williams yeah <laughs> uh, it might be a way, way to put it um uh but uh yeah you know i i've had a lot of people you know i've said oh i'm i'm, I'm interviewing Shep gordon and you know anybody who's not in the music business who's that and i say well More than anything else, here's what I I say. Well, you know the spices, like do you remember Emeril Lagasse's spice? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's the guy that helped get that done. Oh, (laughs) that guy. Okay, so that sort of thing. So I know your book is on Anthony Bourdain's imprint, and it was um, released when he was still uh, with us. How was it working with him? I I I just really miss him and that show.
4: Um, Everybody does. It was great. Um, he didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't really participate in the book except to uh, be like a cheerleader. Hmm. He, he, he came up to me. I was at, um, a book party for Roy Choi, a chef out of LA who has a Kogi trucks and, uh, Anthony. Came oh, right.
2: Roy Choi is famous. Yeah. yeah. We all know him. Yeah. Yeah. He,
4: uh, he came up to me and I had never met him and he said, um, are you a chef?" And I said, yeah. He said, um, I want to do your book. And I said, What? And he said, I'm Anthony Boyd. I said, I know who you are. <laughs> said, I want to do your book. And I said, Why? He said, Because you made me famous. And I said, How did I make you famous? And he said, Well, you made Emerald famous. And I made myself famous by beating up Emerald.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Always just a little bit of the asshole, yeah. which so I he, loved.
4: I loved it. it. Yeah, um, he was great. He sort of stayed out of my way. He got me a co-writer, um, and then we did uh, a TV show here at the house. One of his
2: segments. Yeah, one of his segments is uh, at your house, which is well known. You have lots of parties. Uh, we did a couple uh, of at, at your house.
4: house. We did the 92nd Street Y. And I had always been uncomfortable talking about my drug days, the early days. And he turned me around in a second. He, he looked at me. And one of the questions he said to me was, he said, So I understand you were a pharmaceutical salesman in college. <laughs> and that's what I, that is stuck now. I always say, Pharmaceutical salesman. Yeah. It's a better ring than drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: What's the difference anyway? Yeah, you know? <laughs> All right. So Michael Douglas in the movie uh, Superman, your dear friend, uh, uh, calls you a Jew boo, uh, meaning of Jewish heritage, but following a, a more Buddhist philosophy. So was that always the case or was it after? Was there a conversion after meeting and cooking for his holiness, the Dalai Lama?
4: You know, I don't, I don't really think of myself as a Buddhist. I know um, I'm not a practicing Buddhist. Let's put it that way, but yeah, I, the more I heard about it, my first contact with Buddhism was, um, going to Thailand and there was a a book on Buddhism in the drawer of the hotel room instead of a Bible. And when I came home, I I had a friend of mine, Marty Kriegel at college who, um, knows everything so i I uh, said, "You know I just I started reading this book. Tell me about Buddhism um, and he wrote me this, which I s- still haven't sent out to people, maybe a ten or twelve page um, essay on Buddhism and um, so much of the stuff he said are things I heard myself say to myself, but never had him never had um, any reinforcement and um at the end of his whole 10 or 12 pages he said now forget everything i've told you he said your walks i take a walk on the beach every morning in maui Mm
3: -hmm.
4: he said forget everything i've told you about buddhism your walks on the beach are what buddhism is yeah um And, uh, it sort of really stuck in my mind and, um, but I never really practiced it. Whenever I would come across anyone who was a Buddhist, I I immediately felt akin to him. I felt like I was in there like we had the same approach to life. Um, and then I had an opportunity to meet his holiness, um, in LA, I went to a talk he did. Mm Mm-hmm. And when he walked in the room, I just felt like it was the, the best shower I ever had in my life. I just felt so clean.
2: So the uh, same as when meeting Roger Verge?
4: same, but different. With Verge, I didn't feel like I had just taken the greatest shower in my life. I felt like I had met someone who really was at one with happiness, uh-huh. But had really found a path to be truly happy, not just have a smile or a laugh once in a while. Seemed to be really happy when I met his holiness. He had the same giggle to laugh. He's like. got
2: that little twinkle in his eye and that so little innocent, humor. uh, childlike,
4: uh, uh oh, yeah. yeah, sense of humor is fantastic, just like Virgil.
3: Yeah,
4: but, um, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: In fact, in fact, just to prove the, the, the bit about his humor, uh, your story with the yak tea. Uh, Yeah, comes to mind. Uh, You had found, I think, that 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 uh, you know, a a, a Tibetan uh, is raised on yak tea, right? Yep.
4: So I I got an opportunity to cook for Salinas, and I arranged to get yak tea, which smells horrible. If anyone ever seen yak, it's like um, a million pairs of dirty socks. It (laughs) smells like it's just really for a Western sensibility, very tough. And but I was very proud. It took me about a month to get the yak butter. You make it you take yak butter and hot water and then makes yak tea. Yeah. So I smuggled into the country yak butter through a friend of mine. And the first meal I brought us of this, I had the yak tea, and it was about five o'clock in the morning. I went into his room and he was brushing his teeth. He had his robes down on his waist, his upper chest was not not dressed. He was brushing his teeth and I came in with the tray and uh, said, Oh breakfast, and yes your holiness. And, yak tea? Yeah. got <laughs> so proud of you know all this work, it's like paying off a Yes Your Holiness um, yak tea. And he said, Oh, that's why I love Tibet. <laughs> 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 I never served him yak tea again. Yeah,
2: which means I don't really like yak tea. Yeah. Right I like yak tea right that's amazing um let's talk a little bit about your philosophy which a very unusual philosophy as a manager especially in the cutthroat business of uh, movies and music and and that's this deal making with a a win-win attitude which to me seems like the natural way business should be done but is most definitely uh not the case uh in uh in those very competitive uh Art forms, uh, you know, in the worlds of the Peter Grants, the Don Ardens, the Irving Azos, who, you know, uh, famously has been compared to the devil by his own client, uh, Don <laughs> Henley. Um, you know, why do you think you succeed by not famously being an asshole? And why don't more people try to work in this manner in the entertainment business?
4: Yeah, I think it's difficult. And, you know, a lot of times it depends on um, who your artist is also. You know, um, I think I said before, I would tell my artists, I'm not going to make them the most money of anybody. I don't squeeze the blood out of the rock. It's not my purpose on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if if you have that kind of an attitude, you can try and do a win-win. You can't always do it because it depends who your adversary is. Um, and a lot of times, particularly when you're up against the corporations, they're just so, inhumane that you can't you can't you you can't they they you can't make it a win-win because to them winning is getting everything um but when you deal with humans you can usually figure out a way to get everybody what they want
2: that's the the natural inclination uh, of humans is uh you know there's a reason why we are you know a social animal Uh, And if you look at, at, you know, let us say uncivilized, you know, uh, uh, tribes, uh, where that is the natural inclination to win-win that everybody agrees that, you know, there needs to be, you know, enough food on the table for everybody. Uh, You know, when you're dealing with another group, it needs to be honorable. Uh, And we seem to have lost that in in our Western world. And it's, you know, it's it's really heightened, uh, you know, in the in the 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 world of celebrity and media and, you know, we get to see it and, and all of that. I just wish we could get to, you know, more humanity. I think, you know, a number one, you famously don't have contracts with your clients. This is all done by relationships, and that relationship could end uh, at any time, and you have been screwed uh, uh, by that. Uh, uh, a famous story. Yeah, book. We, well, yes. and, and uh, uh, not a win-win. Let us say uh, the Chris Blackwell story comes to, to mind. You were warned about that, and eventually it happened. And uh, you know, it's it's too bad that we don't have people that you know think like you do uh in in this world it really Uh, i i i I, I, but you know but again i look back at the kids today and i see that they don't they don't have that competitive nature drilled into them that maybe we did i think maybe that has something to do with it
4: yeah i don't know you know there's such big questions i just don't have the answers to them um but I, i i I think, you, you know, it, this, it's, the systems are so decayed and I, don't, I, I wish I could see some light at the end of the tunnel of how it comes back together.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, mm-hmm. But they're just, you know, you see we're, we're moving into this era now where, which is really dangerous, where facts don't matter. And yeah, truth, that's crazy. That's... Yeah, it doesn't matter.
2: Yeah. What is a Rand Paul, the Senator from Kentucky said yesterday that he can't believe the experts. Why should we believe the experts? Well, because they're fucking experts.
3: Yeah.
4: No, no, it's, it's, it's wild. I mean, I, I don't, I talk to friends of mine and I hear things come out of their mouth. It's just, it blows my mind. It just blows my mind that people could um you know corona 19 is, is a democratic hoax i still have people who tell me that yeah who are like intelligent people who are morons yeah
2: um, well i uh, you know there are people that still believe that the moon landings were you know yeah, yeah, no, uh, you know it's it, it's just um uh, you know it's a funny thing you know we used to say that the camera doesn't lie and we now yeah, know that, that the camera The camera actually does lie, Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, it can be manipulated, uh, I I should say, you know, Mm. but, you know, the only way for us to survive um, as a species, uh, and by the way, uh, you know, the planet's not going anywhere. The planet's going to be fine. It's Mm -hmm. us that Right. May end up going somewhere. Yeah. Um, it is
3: to. Believe, we deserve to. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, a-
2: after the the last hundred and twenty, yeah. you know, industrialization and and all of that. Uh, you know, uh, it's obvious that that Mother Nature is striking back uh, at the at the virus uh that is uh destroying you know uh, the the planet and, and, and or at least as it exists uh, at this particular moment in epical times but um you know you just have to believe in the scientific method which is not perfect but says so in its in its position that the point is, is that as new data comes in, we will adjust to that new data. And it's just so hard for people to, you know, who want to live, I guess, in a black and white world. And we do not, a world is not black and white. It is shades of gray.
4: No, it's, it's, um, astounding. I mean, I've, I've had people repeat to me in the last couple of days about how great it is that Trump's conquered Corona 19. <laughs> Didn't you hear Mike Pence, uh, someone yesterday, didn't you hear Mike Pence speak?
3: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, this is the Orwellian. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, straight out of, it's straight out of 1984. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, there's an actual book you can read. That's, yeah. that's I, I always thought it was science fiction. I didn't know it was uh, 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 prophetic.
4: I like that. They Live with John Carpenter. What's that? I did a movie with John Carpenter that sort of rings true today. It's called They Live.
2: They live, yeah. Oh, that's right, with the wrestler um, R- um,
4: Rowdy, R- Rowdy Rowdy
2: Roddy Piper. Right, 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 right. All right. Well, what do you think your uh, your good friend and uh, who's uh, looking at us over your uh, left hand shoulder there uh, and client uh, Groucho Marx would say about these times we are living
4: in? uh would have a joke for sure <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh definitely a lot of that what yeah. you deserve yeah, yeah you got what you deserve kid uh so you live in maui and i i found the story of how you instantly fell in love with the island very telling about you um was it really love at first sight
4: yeah. yeah i'm still in the same house
2: you're still in the same house yeah yeah that you better. bought you you bought it on did you buy it on that first trip that you went there yeah. Yeah. So really, in the end, isn't you know Pele, the uh, Hawaiian uh, volcano goddess, your real love of of life?
4: You know, um, probably not, because if 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 she comes out, (laughs) it'll be a problem. Yeah, you do you do live
2: under Haleakala, but uh, I I I, I think uh, there's not a lot left in Haleakala.
4: I think that um if you get lucky enough you find like your charger on the planet like yeah. for me, i think of maui is like my iphone charger you
2: go and to plug in
4: who had the same thing in the mountains or in tahoe or in reno or if you can find your place where you're comfortable in your skin um that's a great start towards getting happy
2: let me leave you with another quote, uh, this time from your dear friend and mentor, Roger Verge. Uh, it's never about what you want. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to be basically how you've lived your life.
4: Yeah. I, had, I had a really cathartic moment with them. We went to a restaurant. Normally, um, he would pick the restaurants and this day, the, uh, we went really late with an interview and the restaurant he picked was closed. So we just went to a random place, but when we went in, the chef happened to walk into the room and must've had one of his cookbooks or something and knew who he was, but he wasn't a friend. And we got the meal and I didn't like my meal at all. And Roger finished his plate, Mr. Berger finished his plate. And uh, then he took my plate and he finished my plate. <laughs> and um, we left the restaurant, we went outside and they said, Mr. Verge, you know, I I couldn't find anything in that meal that made me want to finish it. What was it about it? What did you find in there that excited you enough to finish mine? And he said, oh, chef, it was horrible. And I said, horrible, but you finished my plate, Mr. Verge. And he said, chef, I know the chef will be behind the door looking at the plates when they come back in. Um, I didn't wake up this morning to ruin someone's day easier for me to eat the food than have to live with the fact that I wrecked his day. And that for me was a defining moment of, wow, what a nice, that's why he's so happy. Because that's the way he looks at the world. He's like a Jeff Johnny Appleseed of happiness. Um, and that's, when they talk about service, that's pure service. Yeah. You know? Mm. Uh, so. You Maybe. took
2: that upon yourself.
4: Yeah. Yeah. No, no upside, no reward. Yep. You know, you do, you, you're doing something of service for another human mm-hmm. at, at not a high price. You know, you had to eat some food you didn't like. That was easier than ruining someone's day and he's right that guy might have committed suicide
2: <laughs> <laughs> if you tell yeah, yeah the great roger yeah, and his, God, whoever you. his friend was didn't <laughs> like my food uh, that's it my <laughs> life is over oh my gosh well shep gordon you really are a superman <laughs> thank you thank you thank for you. being with us on deeper Dicks today.
4: stay safe
3: i cried in Strength, to stand alone again
0: to face the
4: world out on my
2: own. Thank you, thank you, Shep Gordon. We really appreciate all the time, all the stories from an incredible life in rock and roll film and the culinary arts. I certainly had a great time and I hope you all did as well. If you haven't seen the documentary, Supermensch, I suggest you do. And and while we covered a lot of ground that can be found in the film, if you really want to go deeper, pick up Shep's autobiography, they call me Supermensch. One last thing I want to say is congratulations to Shep on becoming a dad after babysitting rock stars, movie stars, Michelin-starred chefs, and fostering a brood prior uh, to having his own child. Uh, Shep, this should be a cakewalk for you. Uh, wink, wink. Uh, not a lot to add this week. Um, I know I, I've been a little lax of late. My weekly show is becoming bi weekly. Um, And that's too bad because I have a serious backlog of legends and great stuff for you all. I promise I'll get back to uh, the weekly programming here. Um, You know, there's just been so much going on uh, at Pantheon. The network is booming, obviously, 50 shows now. Rock and Roll Archaeology is deep in recreating Episode 1, putting everything together for our Hollywood pitch, and working on Episode 20, of course. Um, So it's taken up uh, a lot of extra time, and the thing that seems to be suffering is uh, me getting these out on a weekly basis. There's also a lot of external activity going on with Pantheon. Uh, Not that I can discuss any of it uh, in detail, but which is all uh, extremely exciting. So, you know, thinking about Shep and thinking about how he's lived life and um, uh, how he you know, recognizes those moments and makes a point of it. I want to take a minute and thank all the the behind-the-scenes people that are working hard for us here at Pantheon. So all of us, please, let's raise a toast or a lighter uh, to Richard Evans, my partner in crime on the RNRA, uh, Peter Ferrioli, my partner in crime on all things Pantheon Media, Jerry Danielson, who runs our sound department, uh, our engineers, Christy O'Donnell and Leslie Barker. Social media manager, Daryl Alber. Line producers, Aaron Alden, Nate LeBanc, and Mike Sugar now. Uh, Elizabeth Moody, our general counsel. Billy Cohen, head of business development and sales now. And our Girl Friday and newest member to the team, Aubrey Ann Damasco. You guys know the hosts, and of course, I give thanks to Thank you thank you to each and every one of them but i just wanted to make sure you all knew about some of the people whose voices you don't normally hear i can tell you none of this can happen without this incredible team working behind the curtain okay next week we go back to the immediate family and sit down with legendary drummer russ conkle russ like leland Scholar, is part of the section who in the 1970s seemed to be playing on every important record made in L.A. I can guarantee you all a very fun and interesting discussion on music before and after COVID, along with his entire career as one of the greats to sit on the drum throne. So please come back for that. Until then, in honor of Shep Gordon, instead of keep up the rocking, I'll say, Hello, I must be going. Hello, I must be going I cannot stay, I came to say I
1: must be going
3: I'm glad I came, but just the same
1: I must be going For my sake you must
3: stay If you should go away You'll spoil the party I am throwing I'll stay a
2: week or two
0: I'll stay the summer through, but
1: I am telling you, I must be going before you go away. Deeper Digs is hosted by Christian Swain, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Farioli, sound designed by Busy Signal Studios, engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at pantheonpodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming, wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks.